this is the start of the second season. It is episode two, though. Mm. Who would have thunk it, eh? The 25th episode. Is it actually the 25th episode? Well, we're doing 12 seasons, or 12 episodes a season. It's the start of the, of the... Yeah. Well, it's the start of the third season, really. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, because we're doing but, computer notation. Uh, yeah, so it's the second season, um, which means that we've done two seasons of 12. So this is the 25th episode, or the two doth. How many years have we been doing this? We're up in the years count, aren't we? Uh, almost two years. I mean, we started trying to record just over two years ago. The end of 2014 was when we made our first like attempts at recording when you came down to visit and stuff. Two years. Isn't that mm. mental to think of? Two years. Yeah. It's crazy. It really doesn't feel that long. It's insane. It doesn't. No, it, it, it's, it's gone by quite quickly. And that means Artifexy and like the YouTube channel must be... How old is that? Must be three... Four, four uh, years? No, it's not four. It can't be four. It's not four. No, you started it during 2014, I think. So it'll, it, I think it's just shy of three years. I'm glad the way you know this that I don't. Well, I, I just know because you started it when I was living in England. Oh. Yeah, I started the year of graduation. Yeah. So Because I was bored after graduating college. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, mid-2014. Um, wow, that's crazy. There you go. Um... So you're looking forward to season two, three? Yeah, season two, the third season. <laughs> I, uh, are you looking forward to season two? I am, I am. <laughs> Lots I look forward to all of Artifacts and Edgar. Every single episode equally. Mm, of course. Um, what's called, uh, speaking of good stuff, mm-hmm. uh, we should do some thanking. Okay. I'm always one for thanking at the top of the show. We need to thank the world building subreddit. Yes. Because they definitely. upvoted the bejesus out of the last episode and it was amazing. Yeah, it got a really, really good reception over in the world building sub. Uh, uh, so thank you very much over there. Yeah, so it, it was my most upvoted post to date. Which ah, is. That's nice. Yeah, and by, by a factor, well, like by about 100 uh, votes, which is quite large. And given that it's a podcast, and podcasts are not very easily consumed, that was incredible. Mm. Like, I did not expect that at all. I was thinking a couple of people might have a listen, but like 300, like something like 300 something votes, like just mental stuff. Absolutely mental stuff. Yeah. And we would have, we would have like been right on top of the pile had it not been for some, some other post that did like abnormally well. It had something like uh, 800, <laughs> 800 up posts. And I was like, grr, the one time, the one time. <laughs> No, but it's really cool, and uh, lots, lots of people are really supportive. So, uh, I can only assume we have some new listeners now, and, and possibly quite a lot of new listeners, um, because not everyone votes. So, mm-hmm. there's like maybe 300 people who had a 300 new people who had a listen, and possibly more. So, I was I was thinking we should do a TLDR of the show, uh, given that we've a, a new season and new listeners. Okay. For those people, and, and I think it's quite inter- interesting to try and summarize a podcast because podcasts are kind of like meandering. So, what what mm. what would be your best crack? How would you describe the Artifexian podcast? Um, Edgar <laughs> and Bill talk about world building and get sidetracked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's... Not all the time. Like we do a lot of world building. But we do a lot of getting sidetracked as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I would describe it more as 
Edgar and Bill talk about stuff that world builders generally like, which mm-hmm. may or may not include world building. <laughs> <laughs> so like books and music, and then also a bit of world building, and then also like yeah. like any sort of current nerdiness um, that's going on and that sort of thing. Uh, it's a podcast about world building and related topics. Not necessarily in that order. And licorice, although there's been very little licorice happening. In, there's been in very little life. licorice recently, that's yeah, true. Yeah, it's, it's, it's no bueno, total no bueno, but there you go. Um, How do you feel about flavoured licorice, Edgar? Fla- like cherry licorice and like mint licorice. And... I think it's an abomination. Okay, cool. I'm glad I didn't buy you some that I that I saw before I went up to Dublin the last time. <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 I can consume any licorice. Actually, in fact, I can, I can consume most things. Without any problem. <laughs> um, but yeah, so welcome to uh, the new listeners. Uh, and I hope you enjoy what we've lined up. I'm really excited about this episode. I think we got some really cool things coming up. I think we, yeah. I think, I think last episode we, we set a good precedent for how the show should go. Like this sort of like we challenge ourselves to do world building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then every month we report back with some little element of our world done. And we, uh, we talk about it. I think it's really good. So I, I'm looking forward to yeah. it. Um, so anyway, do you want to crack into feedback proper? Let's, yeah, let's okay. let's go straight into feedback. Uh, so the first thing is you told me to go away and listen to the Hello Internet review of Rogue One. Yeah, did you? I did. You did? I did not expect that. Okay, right. <laughs> well, no, because Bill, he's not reliable. No, he doesn't no, do the things no. assigned to him. That is, that is entirely not true. It's more <laughs> that you're not as big a podcast head as I am. Yeah. Um, so, okay, what did you think? Um, I had no, like, personal, like, strong aesthetic or emotional reactions to the, to it in general. Like, it was just, yeah, I listened to some guys talking and that was fine. Um, but I, I had a lot of disagreements with, with their, their review. Right, okay. Um, for anyone who hasn't listened to it, um, I think it's probably safe to say at this stage, uh, they didn't like Rogue One very much. No, not not at all, really. Not at all. They they liked it better than any of the prequel films. Which that's a fairly low bar, but there you go. That's that, that's a fairly low bar, but one that it did clear. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think they have a very different idea about stories and storytelling in, in some respects than I do. Um, okay, I've, I, I'll just go through what I've written down here. Yep. They were talking about how they they felt it didn't really work as uh, a redemption story for Andor, who's the the main, um, the kind of Black Ops Rebel Alliance guy. Diego Lucia, mm-hmm. I think is the actor. Um, you know, that, that, you know he, he, was, he shot the guy at the start and they found it really hard to kind of be on his side after that. And they didn't really, the film didn't really do enough to actually give him a redemption story. I don't think he needed a redemption story. I mean, he's... He did a he did a, an awful thing at the start because that's the reality of working in you know intelligence and working in uh, you know the, the secretive world of espionage and stuff. Yeah, it, and I liked that that was included in Star Wars, and I thought that was a new, different element. Yeah, agreed, agreed. It's not. It's yeah. It, it kind of pushes the narrative away from what we expect. Uh, science fantasy to be and it's more gritty and real and more yeah. complex 
Um, yeah. So for, yeah, for I I think the that notion of the redemption story is like yeah, that was my thought on that as well. It's like, but why do we need that? Can we not try for something else this time? Like we've we've had that a lot in lots of films. Let's do something yeah. different, you know. So I disagree with that point as well. Um, and you know, the, like how shocking it was that he shot the guy at the start. I was like, yeah, it was kind of shocking, but like that's that's life when you're a spy. Yeah, exactly. And it's like I don't like this advocation of kind of like. Uh, like status quo sort of stuff like that's not what we do in Star Wars it's like well we can do other stuff in Star Wars like we can have people you know be yeah. be grey like they don't have to be the good guy and the bad guy they can do terrible things and we can choose to root for them or not but they a good a good work of art should always make someone think and I think that and makes you think about the Star Wars world more yeah and there's a there would be a case to be made there if it was a main sequence film I think like if it was an episode but it's it's outside that system. It's it's yeah. deliberately it's what they're calling them Star Wars anthology films or yeah. something. Yeah, they are. Yeah, agreed. So yeah. it's it's outside that thing. So it it ought to play with these ideas. Exactly. It should be something yeah. different from the the main series. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Um. Second, uh, I suppose, kind of related to that actually is they kept saying that the rebels weren't likable, and you know, and the same thing. I can't. Yeah. That's fine, you know, it, it shows a bit of more complication about it. Um, it's, as you say, it's more grey or whatever. So I won't dwell on that one, because mm-hmm. kind of, we've covered that. Um, they complained that there was a lot of plot lines that were absolutely unnecessary, like going to to Jeddah to get the pilot, uh, or to, to find uh, Forrest Whitaker, Saul Guerrero, whatever yeah, it's called, yeah. to find Saul Guerrero, to find the pilot, to do something else, to find her father to get the Death Star plans. And they were saying, oh, that could be broken down into like three stages rather than five, which it is in the film. And I hate this approach for, for thinking about, about stories and thinking about storytelling. And, and I think it's particularly prevalent in films. Like not everything has to be the most efficient way to tell the story. And while it has a place that, you know, you don't want to waste time and you don't want to bog the, the audience down on necessary things. I think if everything is always focused on just telling the story the most efficient way, um, then it makes it unrealistic because real life doesn't work like that. Things get messy and there's more stuff to do. There's plots and there, you have to wait around and there's bureaucracy and there's people being awkward. And yeah, it, so it, that that didn't really hold up as a criticism for me. Yeah, not at all. Again, it's it's this idea that like I find that the two of them wanted a Star Wars that is less real and less full of the complications of real life, and hmm. I don't, I just don't agree with that at all. And this this comes back to what I've I was saying before. I think we've discussed it about um, about the Godfather. Remember, remember who we had this conversation? I don't remember. I haven't seen the Godfather any of them. So okay. Uh, well, Sorry. I think maybe it came up when we were, when we were talking about um, the the novel you're never going to write. Um, okay. Which is episode. Hold on. <laughs> Just for the new listeners. <laughs> for the new listeners <laughs> to understand this reference, please refer. To episode, I'm gonna guess nineteen. Let, uh, let's let's go with that one. <laughs> no, no, it was way before that. It was sixteen. Episode sixteen. Episode sixteen. <laughs> um, yeah. So, like, like modern films, a, a lot of the stuff I've seen about advice for screenwriting is, you know, you just everything has to advance the plot. You know, don't have anything unnecessary. Make it really lean. Um, The Godfather is considered one of the best films ever, and it's it's a marvelous movie, absolutely marvelous movie. Um, and there's a scene in it where Marlon Brando plays with his grandson for a couple of minutes. It's got nothing to do with the plot. It's just 
old Italian dude playing with his grandson in an yeah. orchard. No, in, in, in an orange grove. And they peel some oranges and they're ch- t- playing chase around the yard and stuff. I, I've, I've a caveat to that statement, though, about, like, the advancing the plot thing. Uh, I would lean more towards the advancing the plot than to just filling it up with, with uh, extra complications. Uh, the caveat being that if you want to put in, like, the Marlon Brando scene, that's fine as long as it doesn't suck the reader out or cause yeah. the reader yeah. to not be able to process the story. Now, Gray and Brady made the... Um, made the assertion that it did stop us from processing the story correctly. But I don't think that, like, holds up because most people really enjoy Rogue One and the reviews have been unilaterally great. So I think for most people, they could well, not still... unilaterally. Oh, really? I've been... Anything I've read about it has just been like, this is amazing. Well, Hello Internet didn't like it. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's... And oh, do, do you mean, like, like from, like, actual movie critics? Yeah, yeah, just well, I, oh, I don't okay. know. I don't know if they came from actual music cri- movie critics, but more like my reading on the internet. It just seems every review is very positive. Um, right. So it seems like everyone else was able to parse what was going on. I was able to parse what's going on. So therefore, all of their extra plot complications weren't an issue and just made the film seem more real. Mm-hmm. And you got anything else in the in the notes? Um. I, I enjoyed the thing about the communication technology. That was fun, because we said that as well. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end, when, the, when they're broadcasting the plans, then, oh, you've broadcast a radio signal, so surely it could just be, like, picked up somewhere. You know, wait yeah, a month, go to hyperspace to somewhere it's a, a light month away from that planet, space to buy, and um, pick it up there. Although, I guess, if it's actually using some kind of, you know, where it's not just broadcasting an analog signal, where it's using some kind of protocol with an, a computer on board the, a ship in the fleet, then it, that doesn't really hold up. But that yeah, wasn't my reading of it. Yeah, but also, like, the fantasy, like... Yeah, 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 I know. Like, it doesn't snap you out. Like, it's a fun criticism to make, but it doesn't snap you out of it. You're not kind of like, no, I, no, I hate this movie all. because of, like, they don't understand how, how broadcasting technology works. It's like, no, it's a bit of fun. Yeah. Like. <laughs> oh, something I read, actually, after we recorded the episode about um, Rogue One, uh... I'm going to make a very brief aside here for the new listeners, is that it's becoming a tradition that every year Edgar and I go and watch the new Star Wars film and record an episode about it. Yup. Just, you... just to contextualise that for anyone who's who's newly on board. Um, yeah, after, after we recorded the last episode about uh, Rogue One, I, I read that the reason they chose the... or they designed the last planet where the, where the Death Star plans are being held as they designed it was that it, there was only one theatre of the Second World War that hadn't gotten analogue in the Star Wars films yet. And oh. that was the Pacific. And I'd never made that connection that you've got huh. the, like, Euro- Europe has been covered and North Africa has been covered by, like, Tatooine and stuff. Hmm. And, um, uh, there's obviously, like, stuff like the, the, the Eastern Front could be the second film. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, where they're in, where they're in, is it Thoth? Uh, Hoth. Hoth, yeah, on the ice planet, yeah. Uh, and the thing that was, the, like, for, so everything was covered except the the Pacific Theatre, you know, like uh, Guadalcanal and stuff like that. So it's why they had it on, like, a tropical island. Oh. So it was actually meant to be, like, the Pacific rather than Dubai. 
but they still gave it a Burj Dubai. So in my head, it's it's always going to be Space Dubai. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I I thought their reasoning was just a lot more simple. As in, we have covered all these terrains before. Let's have a new train. But I didn't realize they were talking. They were linking it in with um, with a war analog with a world war yeah. analog. That's interesting. That's, that's cool. Yeah, I, th- I think the director said something to that effect. That's, yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. I'm oh, I, I'm looking forward to the Last Jedi. Um. The next movie. Have you seen the stuff about the title? Uh, the debate about whether or not it's plural. Yeah. Yeah. I well, I that's the extent of what I know. Is or is it oh, well, or is it not plural? That will have some sort of plot significance, and that's about all I know. It's been answered. Oh. Whether or not it's plural. And what is it? And it's been answered in a very artifexy and appropriate way. <laughs> okay. And that is. They looked. They looked at it in other languages. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, so they looked at how it was translated in, like, French, say. Or yeah, whatever. Or German, oh. where it's, I think it's Die Letzten Jedi. So uh. that's a plural uh, article. Okay. So we take it as, okay, so we take it that there's numerous Jedi. Yeah, it's like the last oh. Jedi, whereas Jedi is, like, the, the collective Jedi. It's not a single Jedi. Any speculation, then, as to who this collective is? Is Luke is Luke um, Luke training up a whole bunch of followers on an island just off Ireland? Oh, that'd be cool. Uh, <laughs> I suspect not. I, I suspect it'll be him and Ray and maybe Finn. Oh, okay. Oh, as in they become the last Jedi plural. Yeah, that, 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 that's what I'd guess. But I, you know, who knows? Finn become a Jedi? Hmm. Well, he didn't he wield a lightsaber even before. Raided. He did. I, I hear. Answer me this, right? I'm confused about this. In the Star Wars universe, right? I I thought in order to use a lightsaber, one had to be force sensitive. Yeah. Is General Grievous force sensitive? Well, yeah. He He's yeah. Yeah. Isn't he? Hmm. Yeah. He. I think so. Okay. As in, can a layperson turn on a lightsaber? I always thought that it was like there's like. Uh, I get the impression from the the recent movie that like it just has a button and people can just turn yeah. it on, i.e. Finn. But I always thought that there was no button on the lightsaber. You just hold the thing and your force makes it like light up. Um, yeah. Which will, maybe it, they like, come in different varieties. Maybe. Maybe some of buttons and maybe some require the the human and the force element to complete the circuit or whatever. Maybe it's a thing where it's like the technology has been dumbed down so everyone can use it. Mm. Like originally it was like You need the force to do it But they're like Oh we came up with this clever solution And now everyone could have Their own lightsaber Guys 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 what if we added a button (laughs) Genius Genius (laughs) Um, Alright So what I've got one last point Sorry Yep go for it Go for it Um, uh, Hello internet They didn't like Donnie Yen's character uh, explain who this is. I'm terrible with actor names. Donnie Yen was the blind martial artist. Oh yeah, yeah, that's just wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> they thought it, like it was kind of stupid. Where it's, I mean, like, like I see what you mean, but I mean, it's he's a martial arts character. Like they're usually kind of stupid in martial arts films, <laughs> and I mean, like you're watching a film about like <laughs> space samurai wizards. Like, <laughs> what are you expecting from this? <laughs> um, so that, you know that didn't really bother me. And then they were like, oh, you know, he's so clearly like a 
force theme like you know it, they should have just given him a lightsaber at the end and, like admitted that he's basically a jedi but that would have spoiled it for me because again he added another element he's like you know there's more to the the star wars universe than there is just these things it's like you no know, you've got people who have some kind of interaction with the force without actually being force sensitive or being jedi or using lightsabers or you could look at it as like well you know you've got all this cool force stuff but you've also got badass martial artists yeah, yeah, no, totally agree. And th- like uh, the speculation we had on our podcast about him, um, I think is testament to how what good of a character he is. Because we spent ages speculating about like, was he a Jedi? Was he not? Is he yeah. is he like a member of a weird kind of cult that thinks they're Jedi, or are they trying to resurrect the old Jedi religion? Like, is he mm-hmm. is he not fully force sensitive because he doesn't have the information necessary to become a full Jedi because it's been lost? And like, oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah. There was a, there's like there's a whole load of extra background lore that when you sit and think, sit down and think about it with that character, it's just um, it's it's really really good. Like, so I think yeah, just giving him a lightsaber and being like, you are the Jedi is just that's just it'd be lazy. Yeah, um, it would have it would have spoiled the effect for me. Exactly, and I think we need less lightsabers after the prequels. We need less lightsabers in Star Wars. We shouldn't automatically go lightsaber battle and have lots and lots of lightsabers. We should use them sparingly and for good effect. Yeah, lightsabers are cool, but it can be a, 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 a case of less is more. If there were fewer lightsabers, we'd appreciate them more. Exactly, exactly. And the uh, yeah, case in point here is the uh, episode two when they're in the the amphitheater. Amphitheater. It's not really an amphitheater, but the big coliseum type thing. Um, at the end. At the end. Where like every, all the Jedi are there and they're all fighting and they all have a gazillion lightsabers going at once and it just looks like an epileptic fit and you're like, no, it's alright, I'm done, I'm out. <laughs> I don't think that's what epileptic fits look like, Edgar. <laughs> well, like, no, exactly. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I know what you mean, though. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> uh, flashing lights. Oh, oh, no good. No good. Um, the, so... Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm surprised you didn't have stronger feelings for it because I remember being a little bit viscerally angry at it. I get viscerally angry at an awful lot of things. To be fair, though, uh, I kind of wear my emotions on my sleeve sometimes. Um, but I, you I know just... me, I'm I'm pretty stoic apart from when things don't work. <laughs> when technology doesn't work is hilarious. Yeah, when technology, like you know, like when a washing machine or whatever doesn't work. <laughs> uh, but I remember, I remember the general take home I got from the Hello Internet review was kind of like people advocating for films that were yeah status quo films that didn't try and do something new and push the boundaries and that was just kind of like the same well-trodden formulaic sort of thing like the the, yeah. e- the easy path through the film and all this and, I'm, and this this feeds back into previous things we said about well i've talked about how like i think hollywood is just dying a slow and painful death uh, and there's just a lack of creativity i know you disagree with me but i think it's spilled over onto the consumer end where we expect that lack of creativity now and I think that's I don't know I, I I don't I don't think this is a very good culture we're in at the moment. And I thought their views were kind of indicative of it. Um, whereas I think Rogue One is amazing. I think it's a really really good film. It like it has its flaws like all films, but mm-hmm. in terms of like a blockbuster type film, uh, it tried stuff that I, I think is really admirable and admirable Akbar. <laughs> 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 and I and I give I give a credit for that, and I still I still stand by what I said before that I think it's the best of the Star Wars films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that hasn't changed yet. So um, so yeah, 
There you go. Uh, I'll leave links to the to the Rogue One review if anyone wants to check it out. I'll leave both links to ours and Hello Internet's. Um, cool. Should we crack on? Yeah, let's let's move on. Okay, so I, I have I have uh, two things to say about the kind of canon of my world. Okay. That have arisen out of the past number of episodes. Uh, I have replaced my planetary system is no longer called Dagger. Because okay. those sounds don't exist in Oa, and I've decided to just, <laughs> just dump Oa in on this world. Oa is my fictional language for the new listeners. Uh, so Dagger has been changed to Takar. Oh, cool. So it's just it's just like taking the D and uh, de-voicing it and taking the G and de-voicing it. So it's, it's, and it's still kind of the same thing, but Takar yeah. sounds a whole lot cooler, I think. Um, but you could probably go to Takar and say Dagger. And be interpreted as saying Takar because you know they're not used to distinguishing between those consonants voiced and unvoiced. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So uh, cool. you can use both Dagger and Takar if you want. I'm going to stick to Takar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the other thing is the last last time we had flag building. I did some flag building. Uh, I want to give a shout out to a redditor who mentioned that uh, flags needn't have the same uh, design on both sides. Yeah, and they point out that Soviet flag is one of these where uh, the back is just red. I believe was it just red? Yeah, yeah. The back of the flag is just red. The Oregon flag, which is the the front, is blue with a yellow emblem, and the back is blue with a different yellow el- emblem in the middle. Um, yeah. So that's interesting. It's an interesting thing, and I think I might do that. I think whatever flag I eventually settle on, I think the back of it will just be plain purple uh mm-hmm. just because i can uh, and i i think it's interesting now I, I i don't understand the real world uh uh implications it's like why someone would put like a plain design on the back of the flag like that's yeah it strikes me as weird because like you want to be able to identify the flag regardless of what direction you come at it but it's a thing that's done so i'm like yep might as well give that a shot there's actually there's a list of uh 13 of them on wikipedia oh 13 flags whose reverse differs from the obverse. Um, that was, sorry, just a shout out. That was user uh, Isarakathev. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> Isarakathev. Uh, you know, thank, thank you. Thank you for, for sending that information our way. Cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then, oh, another thing a Redditor, uh, a different Redditor, I believe, um, pointed out was they linked us to a flag simulator web resource which is just like literally the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So I'm going to put this in the show notes. It's a thing where you upload your JPEGs or PNGs or whatever into this flag simulator and it puts it on a flag that is blowing in the wind. And That's it is very cool. It is great. And I uh, tested the limits of the thing. It takes odd shaped flags. It takes like the pennant shape. You can do whatever you want. No way. Yeah, yeah. It'll take as if you have a PNG, it'll just register it as being transparent and it'll take whatever flag. Um, that's brilliant so this I, I consider this now like if you if you're interested in vexillological world building I consider this program to be like a just must so it will be in the show notes for anyone who needs it great that was uh, Illyria Prime I think linked us to that so Illyria thank you Illyria Prime thanks to the sub I love people on Reddit I love the way people do this like we wouldn't have a show without people <laughs> telling us what, what we can do better <laughs> uh, but yeah anyhow so yeah Takar uh, I have a two-sided flag, and a shout-out to the flag similar is my sort of canon, nice fe- f- 
uh, feedback follow up from last time. You got anything else so on? So when you decide specifically which flag it is that you're going to run with, it's you're going to make the the reverse plain purple. Plain purple, just because I can. Nice one. Yeah. Um, nice one. So uh, do, you... do I have any do I have any follow up? Um, uh, I'm going to pick up on a throwaway comment you made and make a big deal of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Go for it. Um. So you, you you made some crack last episode about why are revolutionary flags always red or have some red in them? I did, yes, yeah. Okay, I have two examples of, of revolutionary flags that don't have red in them. Oh, very interesting. Okay, what are they? Okay, the first one, uh, you might kick yourself when you hear this one, hmm. is one of the flags from the 1916 Rising in Ireland. Oh, the the manky green thing. The green one that had white and orange writing that said, or I think it was white and orange writing that said Irish Republic. Oh, I'll, I'll link this in the show notes. That is, I should have known that. And that is a disgusting flag. Where's your patriotism? I don't, my patriotism doesn't overwrite my sense of design aesthetics. <laughs> um... For, that's the first one. Yeah, just for a listener really quickly. Uh, we have, it's it's a green flag, a dark green flag, and in giant, giant letters, the words Irish on the top bit and Republic on the bottom bit uh, is written on the flag. And the the yellow, the, the letters are like a pale gold color with a darker mm. gold sort of almost drop shadow like thing. Oh no, it's, it's white and gold. Oh, is it white? It must be colors on my screen here. Um, it's it's just it's just not very nice. The, the the typography is not very it's it's very Celticy, which I think is a bit heavy handed. Like you know, we are Irish, we are Celts. Uh, you what? It might even be white and orange, like the like the current flag is. But anyway, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Um, uh, T L D R, not not a good looking flag. Uh, but but yeah yeah, I should have known that. I should have known that. Yeah, there you go. What's the second one? Mm-hmm. The second one is what's called the Gadsen flag. Okay, spell. G-A-D-S-E-N. Or, sorry, G-A-D-S-D-E-N. Gadsden flag. Okay. What in the name of God is that? Have you never seen this before? The yellow thing? Yeah. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's, um... This this is not good. (laughs) It's from the American Revolution, I think. And it was like some revolutionary group in the 1770s. This was their flag when they were fighting against the, the Redcoats. Um, and it's been... I, I think it's cool. Like, it's, it's a cool motto. Don't tread on me. Oh. I, I should describe the flag. You it's should. a yellow flag. It's a yellow field with a coiled rattlesnake on it. Um, on a sort of a patch of... I guess that's dark green grass. Yeah. And uh, the the text, don't tread on me, written below it. Um, and I, th- I think it's really cool. Like it's, I, I accept it's not a particularly good flag from a flag design point of view, but it's, it's, a, it's a cool and it's a, it's a powerful image and it's kind of iconic. Um, uh, and as much as, I, as much as I don't particularly like nationalism, it can have good aesthetics sometimes. And I think this is an example of that. Okay, um, I, I don't understand the context behind this flag, but don't tread on me seems uh, like a really, like almost like a real passive uh, or a submissive comment. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it isn't like power, like big words written like that. It's like, don't, don't, don't tread on me. 
Like it's well, it's, a, it's a rattlesnake. So if you step in the rattlesnake, what'll happen? It'll get really angry and bite you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, no, I, I get that. But like, just from looking at it and reading it, you're like, oh, I don't know. It doesn't have the same oomph as many other revolutionary phrases like resist or power or you know people. And but it's like, don't mm. don't tread on me. And also, I don't think they have an apostrophe on don't. Uh. They may not. Let's see. There's there's a crack in my screen right over where the apostrophe should be. Uh, they don't. No, there's no apostrophe. Don't tread on me. Don't tread on me. So don't I, tread on I, me. But it was the 1770s, so it was before they, they discovered grammar. <laughs> it's before they discovered grammar. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so a yellow flag, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is really interesting. Now, it's, it's unfortunately, it's kind of used by... Um, some elements of the 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 American kind of fringe right at at the moment. Um, are you the not? Tea Party were quite fond you, of it. Are you not using fringe right, alt right? No. No, but not specifically the alt right. I mean, ah, okay, like, okay. As in more complex than that. As in, like some of the the more fringy libertarian groups and ANCAPs and and stuff like that. Oh, okay, um, and David, so they they use that flag currently, like. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, because yellow is the ANCAP colour. Hang on, do you know who else uses this flag? Ameri- American soccer supporter groups. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that is brilliant. That That's weird. That's a weird decision to make. That's brilliant. Um, but there you go. Two, two non-red revolutionary flags. Yeah. The only two I could, I could, I could find that didn't have any red in them. Challenge. No, I didn't look very hard. But, you know. <laughs> Challenge for, for the subreddit, for listeners, to see if they can Yeah, for sure. Uh, we'd love to see them, like. Uh, sure. Extra challenge, a bonus brownie points if you find a non-red revolutionary flag that is a good flag. <laughs> 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 I mean, that would be really lovely. <laughs> uh, anyhow, are we, uh, do you have anything else to cover there? Uh, I think that's all of my uh, notes from follow-up. Yeah, that's all my follow-up notes. Cool. Do we have anything in emails that uh, is pertinent? We got an absolute ton of emails. Yes. Um, uh, I'll just go through most of them uh, pretty quickly. Uh, we got an email from CJ McCarley. Okay. Who suggests that we look up uh, Glendon Lean. And Glendon Lean was a researcher who sailed around uh, Papua New Guinea and Oceania uh, collecting different counting systems that people had. Oh, so there was places where they would like they would count in base nine or like base 27, I think, were two figures that he gave uh, in the email. And a lot of it was done by body counting. So they'd start uh, they'd start counting, say, on one hand and they'd move up their their shoulders, move up their arms and their shoulders and like points on their head and then down the other arm. Um, So you could say, like, point to your shoulder and they'd know that that was like nine. Yeah, the, there is an interesting function like that, definitely. Yeah, you can point at a specific body part and that directly correlates to a number. Uh, yeah. Which is which is really interesting and strikes me as really useful and seems weird that we don't have that. Yeah. Per se, you know? So that's, that's that's yeah, that's an interesting bit of feedback. I like that. Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> we've got an, an email from Kirk Kerman. Okay. Who says, yeah, you mentioned that you wanted to use the shapes of the flags to convey a medieval... Uh, element to your sci-fi setting mm-hmm. um 
And he suggested that heraldry might be a, a fertile uh, pool for you to dip into. Um, yeah, uh, agree that... thoroughly. Uh, I, I just know nothing about heraldry. Yeah. Um, well, he, he gave us some links. There's a, there's a heraldry subreddit, which uh, am I still subscribed there? Which can be pretty interesting sometimes. Um, now, you see, I'm, I'm sub to the heraldry subreddit and I just like looking at coat of arms <laughs> like they're really pretty and i like like especially when people design their own like like looking at the design of it but i don't understand what's going on like it's not like mm-hmm. flag design where you just do something like there's these rules to it and that i just don't get now to be fair uh this e this this emailer does leave a whole lot of links uh which is something i might check out because if i'm going to pursue this like medieval bent to my uh like cyberpunk sort of thing i may as well like mm-hmm. really go medieval with it like um yeah so yeah something something i'll definitely do yeah um and he also suggests <clears throat> that heraldry would be useful in space that people would adorn their um their their suits and so you would know by looking at it you could like see their their arms Sp- as in coat of arms not their limbs space um, knights space knights space knights yeah never been done before <laughs> Well, he the, the link he gave did go to a thing that included Space Marines from, from Warhammer 40,000 who are kind of like Space Knights. Oh, I was making a Jedi stab there because they're like Jedi Knights and they're in space. But mm, uh, yeah, but that, that is interesting. Slap on a coat of arms as an identifier. And that is yeah. cool because it's like, it's, that is literally just taking the concept of knights and just putting it in space. Yeah. I just get them to fight now and like in laser battles and like you've literally just got medieval warfare in space. It's great, like. I, I think it would be worth <clears throat> noting the, the 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 context of arms though is that that it was used by uh, the aristocracy so there's a, there's a, a very heavy kind of class element to it um, and that that would be worth some something worth considering if you're going to incorporate that in a setting um, that it wouldn't necessarily work for say very egalitarian are you know those kind of utopian sci-fi settings because if you know if, if there's you know thousands and thousands of people and they're all equal you know why would anyone have arms or how would you be expected to distinguish everyone's arms yeah um, but you can really easily transpose it on say like in my setting uh, to the government like government troops could have it like the symbol of their their fighting yeah. for like house government or whatever sure but I, I think at that point it's it stops really being about arms in the same way it's just like identifying people by their uniform Right, yeah, okay, that that's that's a very valid point. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, there is context around that needs to be <coughs> needs to be sorted out. Um but that was that was cool. Uh and now we've got a we got a couple of emails from Chikoko Sotome, who I think we mentioned in the previous episode. We did, and this person was and very happy to be mentioned. Yes, so uh <laughs> you're very welcome. Here you go again. You can <laughs> um, again. Uh the main thrust of Chikoko's uh emails was the language that they've been working on the conlang and uh, called communasian did we uh, did we ask for uh Chikoko to send in the uh the conlang last time we may have i think we did i can't remember god my memory i think we did gone. i think so i think we did and <laughs> they certainly delivered <laughs> uh loads and loads of, of stuff on on the conlang uh, which is is really really interesting. Um, a couple of a couple of points I want to bring up on it. I don't know if they've published this anywhere online, um, but I would I would encourage it because there's there's some great stuff here. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, throw, throw a link in the subreddit or something, and I'm sure people on, on, on the sub would love to check out. Like, Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, it's a, it's a verb-subject-object language, uh, okay. which I'm going to refer to again. Put a pin on that. I'm going to refer to that again in the main topic. Uh, Irish is also a verb-subject-object language, so I've been, I was happy to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some interesting thought put into its presentation. So, uh, Chikoko sent along the, the alphabet and the, the number system, the way numbers are written, there's uh, related but different symbols for positive and negative numbers, which I thought was really cool. Oh, interesting. So, like, negative one and one would be different symbols. Slightly different, yeah. You can see that they're related, but there, there's a different, there's an element in them, and it's a common element between all of the all of them that makes it from a positive into a negative. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so huh. I thought that was very good. Um, the they mentioned that there's a genderless gender system, so that rather than being anything to do with the actual uh, word itself or the concept it refers to or to any concept of masculine or feminine, it's to do with the placement of the vowel, I think, in 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 the word, in the noun. I can't remember exactly how, how it was explained. Um, but if, if anyone's interested in genderless gender systems, from, like, you know, grammatical gender, that not referring to, like, masculine and feminine, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of Bantu languages have something like this. It's, it's called noun classes. Oh, interesting. So uh, they have a prefix that is for the prefix for humans, and then there's the prefix that's the prefix for animals, and then the prefix that's the prefix for uh, abstract concepts or long objects or colors oh. or whatever. And it's di- it's different between all of them, but um, the Bantu languages is a really really big family, and I think there's I think they they could be quite closely related from the little I understand of it. Um, uh, uh, can I jump in here? I have a question. Yeah, sure. Because I sure. haven't, I haven't explored gender in conlang because the video stopped before then. Uh, yeah. A question has always uh, occurred to me was why? How did we get this, to this point where we use masculine and feminine and have it tied to like actual masculinity and femininity in 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 grammar? That always struck me as really strange. Like it makes sense for like you know like if you have like their man, like. We get that that person is masculine, at least in the in the traditional sense. But when yeah. it comes to like the the tree, like why did humans collectively just go themselves? We're gonna make that masculine because reasons. Like how did this arise? It's mental, isn't it? Yeah. Do you, do you know how it arise? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> I really. I see. That was one of the things I was going to do a video on this uh, before the videos kind of stopped because it just it always strikes me every time it's just a massive, massive non sequitur. Yeah. Like, and I just don't understand the conditions that give rise to this. Yeah, like it's 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 completely bizarre to me. Why why would you why would you do it? And it makes it it makes everything so much like it makes it so complex. Mm. It's so much harder to learn. Like, who just sits around and goes, you know what I'm going to do? You need to learn the word and you need to learn the, the kind of the gender to it. Like, what? Like, why not just the word? Like, I don't, I, 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 I don't know. I don't understand. Like, I get the impression that people who speak languages with gendered nouns don't really think about it all that much. Um... So I don't know if anyone, if any listeners who are fluent in, you know, an Indo-European language with gendered grammar can give us any insight into it. But I'd be interested if they can. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't. It's, it's bizarre. 
Yeah, I, I can't give any date here because whilst I can kind of sort of speak German, it, it's certainly not fluent enough that I have to not think about it. Like I constantly have to think about my German when I'm speaking German. And Same. yeah, Same. and my little uh, entry level steps into Spanish don't, don't serve as a data point at all. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I will say on the subject of uh, the gender thing, Spanish, way easier than German. Way easier really? than German. Yeah, and I was at one stage fluent in German, so that's saying a lot. Uh, mm. Way easier in terms of the um, the gender system to grasp. Um, I don't know if this is entirely true, because again, I'm, I'm, I'm just starting off with my Spanish thing. Um, it seems more logical. It seems a little bit less random. Like nine times out of ten, I can kind of guess the gender based on how the word ends and things like that. Whereas right, it, where it, you've got very little of that information in, in, in German. Yeah. Right, it, you just have the thing, and it literally could be any of the three genders. Like, it, yeah. could be, it could be anything, who knows, no one knows, Germans apparently, and we don't know how they know, and we don't know why they started like that. It just makes, it, it blows my mind. Anyhow, so do you want to crack on with, with Chiquico? Chiquico? Chiquito? Chiquico. 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 Two Ks. Two Ks. Um... The I think there's only one more point. Uh, well, it's one and a half points. Um, the the thing that I found most interesting in it, um, and I think you'll see why this this appealed to me, is there was interesting thought put into the social dimension of the language. The um, the the kind of the backstory to it was that it was originally the language of one tribe, I think, or one group anyway, um, <clears throat> who were mainly scribes and translators and stuff, and now it's as they became more. Uh, powerful in, in the society it became spoken by everyone but it's still sort of the language is governed by this tribe um, and I just think it's cool to see people put that sort of thought into the language rather than just coming up with a language entirely neutral and these are words and grammars and stripped of social context or stripped of historical context Bill, like, yeah, that's, Bill, that's Bill cool. are you slagging my conlanging and moral building not at all no joke. We po- we talked about this last time where I was uh, I uh, praised you about doing this exact thing in your world building. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I don't do that. I just world build for the almost like the technical accomplishment of world mm-hmm. building and conlanging. Uh, and I kind of wish I was hardwired like you and Chiquico. I can't do that. I can't say it off <laughs> off the bat. I'm really sorry, Chiquico. Chiquico, is that it? Yeah, you said it right. Oh, okay, right. Okay. <laughs> you say th- you get like. This is like you had this like, a few episodes ago. Like you couldn't say a certain word, and then you're like, "Damn, I can't say that word." And you said it perfectly when you said, "Damn, I can't say that." <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you get an extra practice round at it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but like, as a, as a like flash in the plan pan once off, like it's like, oh, it's it's, it's terrible. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I fully agree with that sentiment. Uh, world building should, in earnest, be done uh, with the with the social context and the broader context, like not in isolation. Don't do what I do, essentially. It, it is essentially what the takeover here is. Do as I say, not as I do. Uh, exactly. Uh, Chiquico, uh, yes. Uh, go Edgar. Uh, Lee, if you do happen to publish this thing, uh, throw us a link. We will chuck it in the show notes or on the subreddit and people should go check it out. If Bill mm. is enamored by it, others will be too. Yep, yeah, I, was, I was impressed with what we got. Cool. Excellent stuff. And the last thing there, the, the, the half point... Oh, the is, half point, yeah. Uh, um, uh, they sent us some messages in Communasian. Um, now, one of them, I'm not going to have a hope of being able to read. Um, <laughs> oh, no, go on, go on. I've messed up Chiquico's name so often. Uh, you get to mess up their language. 
Okay. Uh, so, okay, well, I'll do the bad one first so we can end this, this segment on a strong note. Okay. Um, Shoxan Dema Nardiez Yet A Section The Tean Belumen or sorry, The Tean Beluma The Tean Edgruma. Beautiful. Which Steve. means, Bill and Edgar, please feel my most emphatic thanks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so apologies, apologies for mangling that. For butchering um, the, the The one I'm, going, I'm a little bit more confident with is Dasnar Artifexia Fwaxul. Which means, hello, Artifexia. Oh, class. That's awesome. <laughs> That's brilliant. Right, so for the main topic, as agreed in the last episode, we both went off and did some world building again. Attempted to, yes. Ah, no, we did. We, we did, did, we did, we did. We did. Um, and I went and I worked a bit more on my conlang, you which did. I am presenting to you here now. So the link to, uh, to what I wrote should be in the show notes. Um, it'll link to the the blog for my main world building project. Uh, so this is actually different, a different setting to what we worked on last episode. So last episode was set in Handwavia, which I constructed way back in season zero, our first season. Uh-huh. Um, but this is actually for Janspar, my main, my main, uh, my main project. And the, the concept for, for Janspar, the basic conceit behind it is that everything that I present to the audience will be uh from within the universe so i i've never got like an external encyclopedic um article about this is what this culture are like this is what this culture is like it's just people from within the world talking about it um are sending each other letters or whatever uh, and this created an interesting challenge from the point of view of how to do a conlang so what I've done is I've written the first chapter of a language instruction book from within this world. Okay, so the, the yeah, so what we're be what you're linking to is one chapter of a language construction book and it's covering if if I can continue to summarizing, it's covering sure. what sounds are uh in this language and the language is called Shibani. Shibani, yes. Shibani. Uh, what sounds are in Shibani, and it touches on a little bit of uh, a little bit of a lexicon and how things are pluralized. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's that's pretty cool. I like it. Uh, again, uh, everyone should p- p- pause here and go to the link. It, it's in the show notes uh, and read it. Um, uh, and once you've done that, come back. <laughs> uh, the the I again, Bill. As with all your world building, I really enjoyed it in universe stuff. It's it's really cool. Thank you. And I think this is a really unique solution to the Conland thing because I would have said the obvious thing to do would be to write some bit of prose in which some character just talks in the Conlang and mm-hmm. then have a bit of exp- exposition around this. But I, th- I like the way you've written like a bit of educational text, um, mm-hmm. which is really cool. So do you want to break, do you want to go through uh, the sounds of the language or do you, actually better idea, describe the language in terms of earth analog. Like what's it like on earth? Um, where, where are your influences coming from? I don't, I don't want to give a, a direct answer to some of this. Let me think about how, how, to, how to go about this. All right, can I, um, well, hold on, hold on. Can I take a stab at it then? Yeah, sure. Okay. Absolutely. That's actually what I was going to suggest. <laughs> right. I, I think, uh, okay, so your, your plosives. 
and then the glottal stop are standard English plosives. Nothing crazy there. Uh, okay. The nasals, you have voiceless nasals. So that's immediately making me think of like Icelandic languages. Don't say okay. it, don't say anything yet. Let me just get through the train of thought. Um, so I'm thinking there's a Nordic influence there. Uh, again, your fricatives, so sounds like f, v, that sort of thing. They're all pretty standard apart from sh, which is a very sort of uh, native North American or Welsh sound. So the, the double L, oh the double L yeah the double yeah. L the sla yeah sla I can't remember what the 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 IPA term for it is um uh, uh, though it doesn't matter it doesn't even matter it makes no difference and then you have uh, again a not incredibly strange set of affricates so two consonants following one another uh, apart from one which I believe is Czech inspired. Yeah, I don't even know if that strictly counts as an Africa because they're, they're simultaneous rather than subsequent. Yeah, so um, I'm yeah. I'm thinking I'm thinking this is a and given the fact that you've been learning Welsh, I think mm-hmm. this is English with Welsh influences and the sounds that you like in Welsh kind of elaborated on. Would I be correct in saying this? You are you are partially correct. Hey, uh, I'll take Welsh. Partially. Welsh is one of the the languages that I derived the phonological inventory from. I'm assuming then with all those voiceless nasals, it's got to be Nordic languages being the other inspirations. Welsh has, Nor- has voiceless nasals. Does Welsh have voiceless nasals? Apparently so. Now, in my in my study of it, I haven't really encountered them. Uh, so maybe what I've been doing, uh, the duolingo that I've been doing, just hasn't emphasized their voicelessness and you can make yourself understood with them. Um, and I have an old book um, about uh, from like the nineteen sixties on on learning Welsh, which I don't think has has brought it up at the at the start either. But I've I've read and I was like looking at charts of you know IPA for Welsh and the voiceless nasals were included or some of the voiceless nasals were included. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Did not know that. I did not know that at all. Um. So then, yeah, that that makes me think that it's just entirely Welsh inspired. So do can you reveal your other inspirations? Um, not in this episode. I'm gonna. I'll say it in the next episode if people want to have a guess at it. Uh, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then I'll I'll I'll, I'll say next episode. But there, it's Welsh and one other language um, that I have Ooh. derived the phonological inventories from, and also the the lexical influences. Um, okay. I, I looked up nouns in two different languages in in these two different languages, and just kind of combined bits of the nouns until I got something that had the right mouthfeel. Ah, mouthfeel. Ah, mouthfeel. Uh, one more thing before we move on. Uh, your inclusion of th and the. Uh, why? Because they were, they're in the languages I'm deriving it from. Okay, I, I, can I, can I uh, ask you to consider not including them? Um, ask. <laughs> because there, uh, an awful lot of the reading I did uh, in my Conlang series, uh, uh, reading that informed my Conlang series, uh, pointed to the fact that the and the, although they're in English and English is a like all pervasive language, they're actually kind mm-hmm. of like really weird and unstable sounds and languages have a real tendency to just get rid of them. Uh, right. So they're, they're almost... I don't want to be like hyperbolic here, but they're almost like abominations of sounds. So I think uh, 
not including them is nearly always a better idea than including them. Personal, maybe personal conlanging choice there, but something to think about. They're they're not as common or as easy as people might think. Like a lot of people include them because they're like, oh, they're in English. But then the minute mm. you go and tell a German speaker to produce it, they're like, what? Like the, the? like you know, and even like our dialect, like my dialect, doesn't have it. Like it, they're not they're not easy sounds. You have it. You just don't pronounce it exactly the same way. No, you, 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 you do. I suppose. I suppose you don't do the th. You, yeah, yeah. I you do uh, distinguish those sounds. I'm, I'm, I'm insistent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, I don't. Yeah, I don't pronounce them uh, consistently, and then I tend to dentalize them a lot more than they should be dentalized. Um, well, but, but they're not should be by you know received pronunciation. There's no right way. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and so I, I would counsel always if I see any con language inventory, I would counsel always dropping those. Um. That's just my opinion. Take it or leave yeah. it. And we'll I mean, see. I see what you mean, but like maybe this is just a snapshot of the language at a point where they did still exist. Yeah, yeah. there's a million ways around it. And then also you can always just go, yeah, but English. And that's a perfectly valid counter-argument as well. Um, okay, so do you have anything else? Uh, what else do you, do you have anything to talk about there? Um, about the, the phonological inventory, um, I mentioned that I have I have a, a book that I'm using. I haven't looked at it in a while, but that I have been using to learn Welsh from. Mm-hmm. And this kind of uh, informed my my format here because it opens with you know this is Welsh these are the sounds in Welsh know how to make these sounds mm-hmm. and it goes to all of the the consonants and the vowels, um, but it presents it as you know this is a p sound just the same as in put or this is a th sound like whatever, mm-hmm. um, and I felt that to do that would break the the yeah. immersion, yeah, yeah, um, it, it, like to be to write in this in the context of this fictional world that oh well this is a cuss sound like in cat would be referring explicitly to English. Yeah, and then if you had said like this is a cuss sound as in and then insert fictional word from another fictional language, it's irrelevant to us reading it. Yeah, it's it's, it's it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, to, it means to nothing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I had to kind of come up with a way of how can I, how can I do this without either comparing it to sounds and other words or using the IPA because they don't have the IPA, well, or at least anything comparable that they, that they would have probably wouldn't use the same language. Yeah, but I, you like, use, use the same words. Yeah, but what, what you've done here is you've used the IPA, except you've used it in layman speak. If I can, just, just for the listener, for example. Yeah, like I've, I've described the sounds in, like, straight prose. I've given, like, plain descriptions of how to produce the sounds. Exactly. So, like, for, for yeah. the listener, uh, the sound P, uh, Bill writes, the air is halted and then released at the lips. The vocal cords are not excited, which is, yeah. which is essentially giving a manner... Uh, a place uh, and a place of articulation. It just yeah. they don't. It just just doesn't use that terminology, which I really yeah. like. Which is really it's it's longhand for voice voiceless bilabial plosive. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. and which I really like. And it's 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 good. My only problem with with this prose, and I realize you have to do it, is that when it comes to sounds, I'm not immediately familiar with. It's really hard to parse. <laughs> yeah, that's that's absolutely fair. <laughs> yeah, and like which um, which is which is fine. And I doubt like anyone reading this like, d- does anyone really actually read this sort of stuff and go, I'm using this as a teaching aid for Bill's fictional language? It's like no, they just want to get they, immersed in the world. They better. They better. 
um yeah yeah i like i like your treatment i think it's very very good cool thank you very much uh anything else um i think that's it on the on the phonological thing um so can we move on to the lexicon yeah let's move on to the lexicon okay so bill has included here a number of words so for example and forgive my butchering of your language uh mother is ama father is atta son is toli City Sun as in the star, not as in the kinship term. Bingo with the U. Uh yep. City is Ooh. Oh Kaich? Tsaich. Tsaich. No, it's like a T S. Tsaich. Okay. Oh also another another thing I always want to bring up. Sorry, back up backing up a little bit. I think you should avoid the uh C's. Um this is like As a symbol. As a symbol. Conlanger's one oh one, I think. Uh because of the English association of C. Like, we look at a C and we're always kind of like, it's either an S or a K sound, depending on the vowel. And it's very hard yeah. to, to very hard to break that. Um, there's a famous example in that's covered in the Language Construction Kit by Mark Rosenfelder, which is a book mm-hmm. everyone should get. It's really, really, really good. Um, where uh, Tolkien, there's a word, celeborn, uh, in one mm-hmm. of his languages, and Tolkien had intended the C to always be hard. So it should have been Celeborn. But no one reads yeah. it like that, so it's become canon that it's Celeborn. So C is a real mm. dodgy thing that will make an awful lot of people mispronounce things immediately. So I would nearly insert a a non-standard glyph there, and that would be so much better than than the C. Or just, just put a K mm. or, or TS. Like, I don't... I, the C is... It's always problematic. That, that, yeah, that's that's a good point. That's worth considering. Um, Yay, one good point. Woo! <laughs> part, not not necessarily for this specific example, but part of me is okay with people taking this and mispronouncing it and getting things slightly other than what I had intended. Because for me, that's, that's quite a, a fertile generative process. Um, and it saves on having to actually wait hundreds of years for people to <laughs> develop the language naturally. So it's, if like someone goes off and they do it and they do it wrong and then the way that they do it wrong as could be quite interesting and could be like a different dialect or might inspire me to build something based on what they did that was uh, other than my intention. It's like the George Lucas thing about how to pronounce Leia. It's like all the pronunciations go because they're different dialects. Did he say that? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's in, in the original oh, series, George. I think everyone... Everyone pronounced Leia just differently. It was like Leia and Leia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's lots of inconsistencies like that. Like things like um, uh, Leia's accent changes the whole time. In, in, in Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It goes from like American to like RP. Uh, <laughs> and that, without getting on a big rant, I think that was the genesis of uh, like Queen Amidala's like regal tone. It was like you adopt RP in official... Um, capacities in the star wars universe mm. you're american outside of official official capacities but when you're in official capacities you adopt rp but in any case yeah so he did the same thing he was like leah leah it doesn't matter people speak differently from around the galaxy just whatever whatever goes which i think is great and i think you yeah, that's, and, that's brilliant yeah you and george are are on on the right end here now th- this vocabulary it goes on for a bit and there's loads of loads of little words which are, loads of words which are, which are great uh can i talk about plurals Yes. Uh, again, I'm, I never, I'm glad that you do. Hey, I never explored this because the Conlang series cut off short. 
So I'm fascinated by this and I want to know if there's real life precedent. So Bill has a word here for mother, which we covered. It's ama. And, and then mothers are nama. Yeah. Right. So that an N is put uh, in front of ama and it pluralizes. Mm-hmm. Same with fathers. Fathers is ata. A father is ata and fathers is nata. Now, mm-hmm. is this a real life thing whereby you put in plosives or you, yeah, you put in like non-vowel sounds or whatever at the front and that pluralizes things? I've no idea. You've no, so that's not drawn from Welch or anything. You've just, you've, you've ran with it and been like, that's what I want to do. Um, the idea of changing the start is drawn from Celtic languages, but not specifically to, of mutating it f- to pluralize it. No, that's just an idea I had a few days ago. Okay, and uh, uh, what about this idea? Then if we go on, the sun, as in the celestial mm-hmm. object, is toli. Yeah. And sons are doli. Mm-hmm. So you're, chi- you're, you're changing the actual, you're not adding anything, you're changing the initial consonant. S- yep. Something about that strikes me as really weird. Okay. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't put into words why I think that's jarring. Something about that is, and maybe someone more educated than I could point out why this is, but that this strikes me as like, uh, it wouldn't work that way. Oh, actually, I know why it wouldn't work that way. I feel like there would be there would be too much um, room for confusion. Like if you're if you're talking at speed and you say Tolly and Dolly, mm-hmm. it's like how you. It, I feel like the, the the distinguishing element is not prominent enough. Possibly, but bear in mind there may be other grammatical stuff here that will will emphasize that it's a plural. Yeah, you know, language does tend to be quite redundant. Right, exactly. That that that's a good point. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you keep to that the whole way through. All these words. Okay, you seem to. Wait, can I figure out your plan? There, there's a couple of there's a couple of things here. Okay, there's well, like um, three rules and then five sounds that are slight exceptions. Okay, hold on. Okay, right, let me see if I can figure out the word. Okay, we can figure out some of the rules in front. If a word begins with a vowel. Mm-hmm. You stick a nasal in front of it. Yeah, well, it gets an n. Grant. Okay, cool. If... So sky is ahal, skies is nahal. Uh, where's sky? It's at the bottom. Yeah. I should be at the bottom of the second page of the PDF. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So if it begins with a vowel, you put put a put a nasal class sound in front of it. Uh, yep. If it begins with a t, now does this hold every time? If it begins with a t-like sound. So you just it it's meant to. <laughs> if it's if it's if it's voiceless, if you have a voiceless plosive, you voice it to make it plural. Yes. Yeah, that seems to hold. Uh, now there's also a rule regarding addings of adding of vowels at the front. Oh jeez, this gets complex really fast. Um I don't know, what are your rules? Or can you reveal them? Um Mr. Okay, Mr. I, I'm not gonna reveal all of them. <laughs> so you're so um, secretive. I've... No, I'm just because I'm just because this you know the whole thing is like I, I want it to be just revealed through the through the documents. Um, okay, okay, okay. So you're yes. So now I'm I'm sure as as I go on and build more of a lexicon, I will find exceptions that I like. But the the general thing at the moment you've hit on two of them is that a noun beginning with a vowel takes an n mm-hmm. to pluralize it, and a noun. Beginning, we said it with a, a voiceless uh, fricative. Uh, it's any voiceless consonant. You voice the consonant. Oh, any any voiceless consonant. You voice it to make it plural. Okay. Yes. Pretty much, unless unless there's one of my five exceptions. <laughs> um, 
which I uh, only a few of them even show up in the lexicon. So they're they're not all they're not all available to be discovered at the moment. And now, um, what's the rule regarding adding on vowels at the start? That seems to be a thing you're doing here. Uh, okay, well let's let's see. Where where am I doing that? Uh, cities. Uh, so Saich becomes Atzaich. Uh huh. And then God is Duot. Duot becomes Aduot. Exactly. Uh, there. So that must be. What's the rule here? What is the rule? Why? Mm. Hold on. Well, let me think about this some more. Actually, maybe maybe Saich shouldn't be that. <laughs> let me think about that. Well, what's your rule? If it's voiced, if it starts with a voiced consonant, it gets an A. If it starts with a voiced consonant, it gets an A. Okay. Okay. Adult. Does that make sense? Adult. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. And then you have uh, you have exceptions, which I don't think we should get into because I think they're important, those exceptions. Uh, one thing conlangers often fall into is like creating stuff that's just too artificial and yeah. make, makes too much, like, like yeah. analogs of Esperanto all the time. Um, yeah. so it's good to have like, oh, these are the rules and then this is an exception and then also that. And then because of historical p- reasons, there's also this weird like case where it happens. Um, yeah, I think that's really important. Uh, cool. Yeah. I, I like, I like the pluralization thing. Some, th- something about it is strange. Uh, I, I don't know whether or not that's just me. If someone could let me know, that'd be great. Um, well, can, can, do you want to hear what my, what my reasoning behind it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just making things a little bit more intense at the beginning of the word. So instead of having it voiced like kathen for tree, gathen, it's a little bit more intense because there's more of them. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, but yeah. that, that doesn't really hold up with ama and nama. Yeah, because you're nama and then it's, it's like you're adding an extra sound to it. Oh, okay. In terms of adding extra sound, yeah, yeah. Because I was about to say, it doesn't make it more intense by adding an N because A, like a, a vowel is always going to be more um, sonorous. So by adding, yeah. uh, by adding a less sonorous sound in front of it, you're not making it more intense. But yes, you're adding more sounds. So yeah, the intent, there is intensity derived from that. Um, Although I, did, I have played with the idea that some of the, some of the related dialects or some of the, the related languages um, around Shibani would... Uh, play with nasalization of vowels uh, as a grammatic thing. So instead of being, say, it doesn't work so well with, with uh, mother and father, but for, for um, what's another word here? For ahwal, mm-hmm. instead, of, instead of it being nahwal for the plural, it might be anhwal. Oh, interesting. Like it nasalizes the, the vowel instead. Oh, I hear, okay, sorry. I, I, it just dawned on me. Uh, mm-hmm. I think another problem I have with the plurals here is that, yeah, the 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 intel- intelligibility argument again. I think you should rely more on adding sonorous or changing sonorous elements, such that like it's 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 easy to decipher meaning. So, like if you had ama, and mm-hmm. then you ch- if for mother, and then you change it to like ami, I realize that's very kind of like bog standard. That's easy mm-hmm. to recognize because you're all, the, the sound you're altering is the most sonorous in the syllable. So pe- right. people will automatically hear it. Whereas if you add on, say, a, I don't know, like a voice plosive, that's, that's not very sonorous at all. Like if there's, you can literally look at a, 
um, sonority hierarchy online and you'll see they're right down the bottom. So I'm thinking, yeah, again, in quick speech or if it's being shouted someone, I think you'll lose the ability to be able to distinguish well. I think in isolation like this, when it's written in front yeah. of you, I think you can definitely see it. But yeah, it's, it's like you can hear it like Ama versus Ami and then Ama versus Nama. I think you can. I think you'll lose intelligibility uh, doing this. I, I don't mean to diss your ideas. I'm just this for the sake of debate. No, and, you know, that's um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I had there's something about the plurals. I'm not. I'm not digging. Hmm. Sorry. No, that's okay. Um. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying, but you know, maybe that's just a part of the language. You know, some some languages are bad at doing certain things. Yeah, but they tend they tend to they tend to kind of iron themselves out. Like like because like intelligibility is like the whole point of the thing. Like maybe yes, there certain languages are bad because or not bad because but they're awkward because they employ complex sounds. But like a base level is can can I be understood? Especially like from evolutionary sort of sense, like can I be understood on a hunt way back like ten thousand years ago? That sort of crap, you know. Like I think that that's important. Uh, yeah. Uh, but again, I could be entirely wrong here. I'm basing this on very little. I'm basing this on gut mm-hmm. and just by looking at yeah. it and go and, and talking to myself. Because again, like I encourage people on subreddit to tell me why I'm wrong um, on this. But um, but yeah, and I, another point, just re- another point, I really like. I really like the your the sounds you have chosen for mother and father, particularly yeah. because they follow the nice rule that they should be sounds that kids can produce very easily. Yeah. Because they will be the initial sounds that they'll be the f- their first steps into language will be the sounds for mother and father. And that's ama and atta. And I think yeah. that's, I think that's really, really good. It, it's always jarring if someone has sound for, sound for family members or words for family members. And there are these big, complex ream of sounds. You're like, that's just not. Chitangai. Yeah, yeah. It's just not. Fe- like, it's Klingon. Klingon will probably have that. <laughs> but like, it's just. Yeah, it's not feasible. And I like what you've done there. It's a clever, clever use mm-hmm. of sounds. And then the more complex, like, um, more complex uh, ideas and concepts get, have slightly more complex sounds because there's something that arises later. Um, yeah. Yeah, I like it. The word, the words are good. The pluralization, I have issues with. Okay. All right. Anything else on that? Um, from reading it, do you have any... Does it give you any ideas about about the world, like from from the language and from like the kind of the? Uh, I suppose it's not, it's not strictly paratext, but from like the 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 preamble and stuff around it. Does it, do you feel like you you get any impression of what the world is like? Uh, okay, maybe in the preamble for the listeners. In the preamble, there is discussion about mutual intelligibility, mm-hmm. and how there seems to be. Now, I'm paraphrasing here, so stop me if I'm getting it wrong. There seems to be, like, this language continuum where the, where mm-hmm. Shibani occurs, uh, where, yeah, sounds are borrowed and all this sort of stuff. That reminds me a lot of uh, what goes on with, oh, God, is it Bantu languages? You have a big, massive la- language continuum stretching all across Africa, whereby... Well, like, everywhere kind of south of Nigeria, I guess. Right, yeah, whereby... Uh, any any neighboring languages are are mutually intelligible, but you lose intelligibility the further down the line you go. And um, yeah. this reminds me an awful lot of that. So I'm 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 getting a sort of African 
vibe to it. The okay. sound, but the sounds aren't giving me particularly an African vibe. Like those nasals mm. are just like, like we said, like they're Welsh inspired. They're not giving me an African vibe. But yeah, I'm getting the idea of a of a language continuum. Okay. Am I right? Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's literally what it's describing. I guess it's, there's like but I'm no, people I, live I, here. I, but am I right in saying that? Well, no, because you don't have like a language continuum in in Europe. Like, it, it, there is a certain set of circumstances that lead to this, you know. And what I'm saying is that your world, your prose here is making me think of a set of circumstances that are like very close or mirror uh, what's going on in Africa. Well, I don't, I don't really know the. I suppose it comes from the Bantu expansion. Is, is why that yeah. why that language thing exists. Um, I don't really know much else about the scenarios that set up a um a, a language continuum like that but i would suspect that we probably had something a little bit more like that before nationalism in europe right like, yeah yeah you know there's you know the, there's the dialects of like italy or well, this was the languages of italy that aren't really italian um but they're all kind of just about mutually intelligible with italian but not necessarily to each other and then there was all the languages all over France. And then, you know, there'd be some of the ones in between where, oh, well, actually, that, that language is a little bit more like Italian, but it's in France. And then, oh, well, Catalan is in Spain, but that's actually a lot, it's a lot more like French in some respects or whatever. Um, so I, th- I think I think Europe probably was a little bit more like that. Okay. Yeah. Before no, nationalism happened. Uh, agree, agree. But, uh, and then also, I suppose, another thing that is making me think that it's uh, that it's a... African setting and I, I'm going to be clear here like a sub-Saharan uh, like yeah. desert sort of setting like a low-tech setting I realise these words could be quite controversial when referring to Africa but I hope I'm getting the right drift here uh, your lexicon doesn't contain any words I realise it's small but it doesn't contain any words that lead me to think that this is a Westernish culture um, oh, okay like it has it has cities i get that but there's an awful lot of like camel elephant uh lots of words about nature we don't have things like buildings or streets or roads so that further emphasizes to me that this is a a bantu-esque sort of thing i realize i'm wrong now but uh okay but that's that's, I i see where you're coming from yeah, I mean, like it, that strikes me as a deliberate decision. And you're like to have words like if we just ream off a couple here. We have uh, water, fire, fish, bird, dog, cow, camel, elephant, three, a tree, and leaf. So this strikes me I'm, as I'm, like I'm gonna I'm gonna say all of those in the language. Go for it. <laughs> Tal, Shan, Mizin, Toten, Kichi, Futsa, Shatem. Esvuch, Kathen, Idzen. It's a really nice sounding language. Oh, thanks, dude. It's a very nice sound. I like it. It's very, it's, it's all of those nice fricatives and voiceless nasals. They, got a, they give it a real breathy vibe to it. It's nice. I can't quite do the voiceless nasals right. And, and <laughs> like some of the, like I can't quite get that, that ch- check, the raised sonorant trill. Yeah, but you're not a native um, speaker of Shibani. So like, you know. Yeah, or she. And I'm not not fully. I'm not fully able to do that. Um, that double L sound. That <laughs> no, I can you kind of do it. You, you do that fine. You do that fine. You really do. You reckon? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, cool. so anyhow, so we have water, fire, fish, bird, dog, cow, camel, elephant, tree, and leaf. This gives me the vibe of sort of a sub-Saharan agrarian society. Okay, 
Uh, I suppose you're not going to reveal to me, are you? Um, no. All I'm going to give you is the the cryptic clue that you know it a little better than you realize. I I I fully realize that this is the setting we played D and D D and D in before. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the city I mentioned is the city where 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 it was set. Yeah, but didn't we this okay. setting for for the listeners? We played D and D a while ago, like a long time ago, and Bill World built this setting for the game, and yeah. it, this occurs on a peninsula, right? That is analogous to like the Arabian Peninsula. Mm, maybe a bit, yeah. So my idea of like an African agrarian sort of thing seems exactly fitting. <laughs> Africa and Arabia are quite different. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, okay, but this is certainly not Wales or Iceland. The way your phonological inventory would would oh, okay, I see what you mean. Would yeah. give the vibe. So I don't know. Okay, I'll I'll think about it. I'll get back to you. Follow up for next time. Sure. <laughs> I like I like it. I I I really like your inventory, man. I think it's Thanks, it's, it's a real lovely use of real breathy uh, uh sounds and real lots of real nice fricatives. It's, I like it. It's good. Um cool. Thank you very much. Okay. Anything else to cover on that or shall we crack on or what's what's the crack? Um uh I've got one slight uh digression. Oh, yes. Go for it. Um and this this touches in like what I said about the uh, uh, I see you clicking through the the document there. <laughs> what I said about uh, the language that Chicoco sent us and the, the way I like to think about world building, um, how like interesting languages can be, uh, and like the stories that like just like just facts about the languages can tell us how, how interesting those can be, um, and like what I said about you know how a few hundred years ago there was kind of more of a language continuum in Europe um, I, as far as I understand I came across only sort of related to, to doing this I came across a um, a language called the, the Plowdich language the Plowdich language okay I think is how it's pronounced um, now this the story here is wild Plowdich is a German language it's a, it's a um, low German I think it's a form of Prussian, as in Germanic Prussian, not mm-hmm. old Baltic Prussian. Right. Um, spoken in Alaska. Spoken in... Via the... Wait, wait, in Alaska? I, I don't think... I think it's probably dead at this stage. It's very, 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 very rare at this stage, but that it was spoken in Alaska. Oh, okay. Via the Russian Empire. In uh, a Russian Empire? Yep. Huh. So the the speakers of Plowditch were from somewhere in Prussia, like historical Prussia. So I I, I guess would be somewhere that might be in Poland now. And there, over history, there was a lot of uh, German speaking immigration into the Russian Empire. Like there's there there were Volga Germans right up until the twentieth century. I don't know if they're still around. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them were repatriated, I suspect. Um, and you know this is, this is the whole thing. Like languages are so much more complex historically than I think we we realize a lot of the time, um. So there were this like German group, and a lot of them were um religiously they were Mennonites, and they were living in in the Russian Empire, and then when Russia was like colonizing North America, where they had you know Alaska and I think bits of what are now Canada might have belonged to Russia at some point, um. These German speaking 
or at least Plowdeutsch-speaking Russian Mennonites immigrated to Alaska. So they like they ended up in North America, going the long way around, like uh, across Asia, to to colonize there on behalf of the Russians. Wow! Isn't that a cool? Isn't that just like a cool story? When you when you think of, I mean, if if you thought at all about German immigration into the United States, you'd think of them being kind of, you know, English speaking or German speaking and now speaking English, or maybe kind of the you know, Jewish immigration, mm-hmm. German Jews going to, to America. You might think of Texas German. Texas, um, Texas German? What? Yeah, there's a, there's a dialect of, of German spoken in parts of Texas. Get out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there, there are other kind of um, Mennonite groups and like groups like the Amish who, who would speak uh, Germanic languages uh, that, that some of them might still have, have theirs. But they came mostly across the Atlantic. This one went the long way around, went to Russia first, then all the way across and then crossed the Pacific and set up shop in Alaska. That's crazy. Yeah. I, I'm, lo- I'm, looking and, at, oh, I'm looking at the page Texas German for, just for a second here. Um, yeah. This is, this is hilarious. Like an airplane in standard German is a Flugzeug. Flugzeug. Yeah. Which, which kind of translates to like flying thing. Yeah. Flug is like flight and Zeug is like thing. And then yeah, in Texas. Flying yoke. Flying flying yoke, exactly. And then in Texas German, it's like Luftschiff. So Luft is like air and Schiff is like boat. Yeah. And it's a, like. A, a skyship. Yeah, yeah. Or like an air. Like the Wikipedia says an airship. Like it's. Yeah. This is crazy. It's not, it's not even. It's so close to German. This is mental. Like a skunk. In standard German is stink- oh, uh, stinktier, stinktier. So literally, like smelly animal, smelly animal. <laughs> and then in Texas German, it's stinkkatze, which is literally smelly cat. <laughs> That's great. This is great. You know what? You expect more. Uh, you expect it to morph more, but this is literally like intelligible. You speak yeah, well, German. You can oh, speak yeah, Texan absolutely. German. Absolutely. I mean, I think they. It's it's like immigration that happened at the end of the nineteenth century. Okay. All right. Okay. That's, yeah. that's mental. I should go hit up my German homies in Texas when I'm over in America in the summer. Yeah. Um. <laughs> do you know? Do you know what the? Do you know what the German for sloth is? Like regular. Hochdeutsch. Oh, is this like a foul tier? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> lazy animal. <laughs> yeah. Fa- foul is lazy and tear is animal. Love it. I just. I just think that is so. First of all, hilarious, and second of all, adorable. <laughs> I, I adore German and the way they name things. It's just like, what is this thing? And then someone describes it, and you're like, okay, we'll name it exactly that. There's no hyperbole. There's no nothing. It's completely descriptive of the thing. It's just, it's hilarious. Oh, my God. What do you call that lazy animal? I don't know. Lazy animal. Lazy animal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. It's a wonder that German, like the German race, has spo- spawned so much like creative brilliance over the years. Like Bach was German, and all this. Like you think with that language, they'd be predisposed to be kind of really like sit like uh, like non non creative. Do you know? Because um, <laughs> it's so literal, you mean? Because or... it's so literal. Yeah, it's like there's no there's no creative license on little to no creative license used in the language. It's just like what is the thing? This is the thing. It shall be called that. <laughs> But at the same time, they've they've spawned like Bach and Beethoven. It's just yeah, it's mental. Um, there is a tendency among speakers of of Plaudich, um, 
to not use future tense or to kind of construct it in curious ways hmm. to, to speak of that they have intentions to do things rather than that I will do a thing. Is this like philosophically? Is um, this a philosophical it's... choice? As in you don't know what will happen tomorrow. Don't jinx it by saying I will definitely do that. Kind of, yeah. Hmm. Um, no, I just I just read this off Wikipedia, so I, I mightn't have the, the full details of this accurate. But um, and it's it's in, it's only in some in some some of the communities. But it refers to a Bible verse, uh, James four thirteen. Ah, yes, James four thirteen. <laughs> which is uh, I'll read it out for you. Uh, this is from I should know what version what translation this is from. Hmm. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, the, the Orange Catholic Bible man. Uh, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away which is a pretty cool verse i have to say yeah yeah. but uh on the basis of that they don't actually say i will do this and we will go to such and such a city the the some some speakers will just say I intend to or I will try to or I want to. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting. That is interesting. I like that. I like yeah. that from a, from a philosophical standpoint. It reminds me of the Spanish again because I'm learning Spanish of the the different verbs to be. You have Are the uh, different verbs to be in Spanish. Yeah. Know. Oh God, I'm gonna get this wrong because I'm not good at Spanish. You have like uh, uh, ser and estar. Okay. And the way I understand it is that um, if there's a sense of permanence to a thing, you use a star. And if there's okay. a sense of transient thing, you say uh, ser. So if you were to say like something like, I am sad, you're not permanently sad. So you'd use ser. So I don't know, whatever that is in Spanish, I can't say it. Uh, which mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting. Uh, and I've been keeping uh, an eye out for that as I study Spanish. And... I don't know if it's entirely applied consistently. <laughs> like, there's sometimes mm-hmm. where I'm like, hang on, are you saying that you're permanently in a state of, like, I don't know, panic? Uh, it's just, it's just, I, it's very strange, but it reminds me of that, like, the different uh, sort of philosophical bent to the language. Cool. Yeah. Um, there you go. I like it's kind it. of like Irish. Oh, wait, hang on. There's something like that in Irish? Yeah, there's two verbs to be in Irish, at least. There might be, <laughs> there, I think there might be. Is there kind of a third? Wait. I know. But there's, there's like, there's uh, B and there's S. And it's not exactly like this, but I always kind of think of it as um, like B, which is the verb like ta. Okay. Is uh, descriptive and S is definitive. So give me an example here and I'll translate for the listener. So... Um, you'd say something like, uh, Tom a time. Time, Tom a time. So yeah. I am sick. Okay. Yeah. Or like, ta, ta, um, ta ukrasarm is I am hungry. Yeah. Although ta- it's, that's more like there is, there is a hunger on me, which is another kind of a, a separate thing, but similar, sim- related. Okay. Um, but then you'd say like, um, you could say like, uh, is moonthor me. Oh, I am a teacher. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see the difference. I realize. Now, that, as that... I said, my Irish is, is a little bit. I'm 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 learning. I'm doing a course at the moment, actually. 
um, doing even classes. Uh, so it's it's a little bit wobbly, but it, they might not be perfect examples, but certainly a distinction like that seems to exist. I realise now that you say this, uh, for anyone who doesn't know Irish, it's going to mean absolutely nothing to them. <laughs> because I can't, I know exactly what you mean. There are two different versions here. Uh, but yeah, mm. I can't really define why. Yeah. <laughs> or for example, like, um, where Barack Obama's slogan, Yes, we can. Yeah. Right? That was translated into Irish as Isfederlin. And that's not using ta, that's using is, which is which is the other form of the verb, or the other verb, possibly. I, I, remember, I don't know exactly how it's split up, but it's 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 not ta, ta mi robulta, or whatever. Yeah. A way you could translate that, but it's is federlin, so I maybe won- there's a more emphatic thing to it. I wonder if this leads, uh, kind of follows on from what we said before, where uh, the most common verbs are subject to the most amount of mutation. Mm. So I wonder. I, so. I wonder if this is the case. Yeah, like you use to be all the time, so it could lead to some interesting uses where to carve is not going to have these mm. this multifaceted layering going on. Um, yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. A can lang on a race that is entirely composed of butchers. <laughs> uh, uh, do we have anything else? On that, um, I think I think that's it on the the con langing front. Um, okay, so we we'll talk a little bit more about language and language learning if we if we get to it in the green room. But that's that's it for. I think that's it for my con lang. So um, I have more stuff planned. I have ooh. a bit of the grammar planned out. Um, I've I've actually I was playing around with the idea of of including noun classes, like I mentioned earlier, the Bantu thing. Um. But I don't cool. know enough about it to know if I can do do it justice yet, or you do it like uh, well. So we'll see if that happens. A uh, bit of research. Let us let us know how you get on. Definitely, I, I will. I um, cool. As always, links in the show notes for anyone who uh, wants to read up on this. Um, sure thing. Yeah, and let us know. Let us know what you thought of it in the sub. Let's talk some fauna. I am looking forward to this. Have you seen the pictures yet? I have. I have looked at all the pictures at least up. twice each. At least, at least twice each. Okay, so for the listeners, last month, uh, my job was to come up with some fauna uh, for Takar, uh, as it currently stands. Uh, so what I did was I had a concept for various animals, and mm-hmm. I talked to Astrid Frizek, which I really hope I'm pronouncing correctly. I think I am. Mm-hmm. Uh a uh, an artist who has created art for the podcast previously uh, to see whether or not they would uh, draw some of my concepts. Um, mm-hmm. And they obliged, and they're awesome, and I'm so happy with this. <laughs> so uh, thank you, thank you so much to to Astrid for doing this. They're like they're they're really absolutely excellent. They're really good, and, and it's and it's all pro bono workers. We like I, I you know we don't pay Bill here at the Artifacts Podcast. We can't pay external people <laughs> to do any of this. So it's all pro bono and just done out of the goodness of people's hearts, which I think is great and testament to Astrid. Um. So. Uh, yeah, so I suppose, let me, oh, again, everything's going to be linked in the show notes. Have a look, have mm-hmm. a peruse through uh, the the collection of wildlife. Um, I'll just talk at you. I'll talk up my influences at you. Yeah, go for it. Okay. I'm gonna, I might even take notes. Hold on until I get a pen. <sighs> oh, pen and paper. Oh, God. 
So remember, Takar is a uh, world built on sort of Afro-Brazilian conceits. No, do you remember? I don't remember that. Do you remember it all started with Kiambanda, the magic system? And that was yes. a a system that was inspired by uh, practices that are Afro-Brazilian in nature. Oh, okay. So that I thought about that for for my animal creation and was like, okay, I'm just going to look up a list of all the animals that live in Brazil and all the animals that live in uh, the region in Africa whereby Kiambanda uh, is thought to have like begun. And <laughs> okay. I am going to cross-reference the various animals and mash them up together into like hybrid animals for two reasons. Mm-hmm. One, I absolutely adored the last airbender, Avatar the Last Airbender, mm-hmm. the way they did that with animals. It was I just, knew it. <laughs> it was just it was just it's just great. And I wanted to do the same thing. Uh and second oh. reason second reason is one of my favorite subreddits so subreddits is hybrid animals. Which right. does what it says on the thing. You take one animal, you mash it together with another animal, you make a whole new wonderful magical creation. And I wanted to do that here. Um so that is there is no complex societal uh world building going on here. I literally just wanted to fill this this thing, this this fantasy of mine to make this happen. Uh okay. So this is what occurred. So if we go through them, uh just to explain, uh what first animal here is the I've called it the bat possum. Okay. Which is lit- which is literally just a um portmanteau of bat and opossum. So it is for for anyone who's not looking at the picture right now, it is quite literally a a opossum that has wings and a fu manchu. <laughs> and it looks awesome. You should really check it out. It's amazing. Uh fu- oh, it does have a fu manchu. Yeah, a part of the thing I wanted a lot of the animals to have fu manchus. Okay. Why I I don't know I really don't know it's like I for my might go well uh, and uh, just a little design thing here that uh, I asked Astro to include was uh, all the animals have three eyes mm-hmm. at least three eyes and all of them uh, contain some sort of purple so again just running this team of purple from my world um, mm. so the so the 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 bat opossum or the bat possum uh, has purp- has three purple eyes. Um, mm-hmm. The reason for the three eyes is because, so if you remember, uh, Takar is located around uh, a star system that has a low mass stars. Mm-hmm. Low mass stars are prone to be flare stars. So that means sporadically and without warning, they can like, um, like orders of magnitude double their energy output in massive, massive flares. Um, so there is a BBC documentary ages ago about that theorized about what uh, life around such a world would be like. And one of the things, one of their postulates was that animals on planets around these low mass flare stars would need to have some sort of early warning system so that they could take cover. And they, they, they postulated this idea of a third eye, like a UV sensitive eye that picked up like trace amounts of increased UV radiation and the, mm-hmm. the animal would register that and run for safety as uh, when a flare erupted. So this is why they all have at least three eyes. They have like eyes for normal uh, visible wavelength vision and then one eye to see in the, in the UV so they could like uh, hide from this, this threat. Okay. Does that make sense? 
It does. Oh, but there's... Know, it doesn't sound. It doesn't sound like the most evolutionarily efficient solution to the problem. What would be the most evolutionary sufficient uh, thing to the problem? Just be able to see UV with your regular eyes. That's true. Rather, rather than developing a whole other organ that has only this one use, and is is going to be like, how often would a solar flare happen? Yeah, yeah, but hang on, how? Are you, oh, like, well, well, that's that's completely sporadic. It could be all the time. I don't know. Like that. Yeah. that that's I mean, like if if it was like hundreds of years apart, it would. I wouldn't imagine it would be a very strong evolutionary pressure. No, I wouldn't imagine my setting would be hundreds. Would have it hundreds of years apart. But like, also, okay. man, you're like, if you think about it, all the organs we use to like interact with our environment with like mm-hmm. do we need all those organs do we need to be able to see hear touch smell like there's plenty of animals that don't do with some of those organs uh and yeah then... but this this is an organ that's just got one really really specialized thing it's only going to be used in one occasional circumstance you could get the same benefit to that organ in a much more efficient way that would require less uh, less resources and would, would like, in in the the evolutionary path, would outperform. Like, if you, if you had, say, t- two branches, one which had randomly mutated to have two eyes, or had you know, however many number of eyes, that and all of them could see ultraviolet, and you had another one that had two eyes that couldn't, you know, two regular eyes like us, and then one ultraviolet eye, that's going to be a less efficient solution. So the one with eyes that can all see ultraviolet will gradually outperform the other one. Possibly. Possibly. I w- see, what I, see what I mean? I do. I would I would argue that you would need to look at the uh, output. Where is the peak output? Uh, uh, the peak radiation output of the star uh, on a normal day. So like our sun, the reason why we see in the visible wavelength is because we see... Uh, we see what is the peak output of the sun. Where is the where is this sun usually irradiating at? Right. Right. So uh, my gut is I have to research this. My gut is that it actually could be quite complex. Like these low mass stars would usually be skewed towards the infrared slightly, so they're standardized. You couldn't have a system whereby the eyes would just see UV because that wouldn't be the standard output of the sun. The standard output would be more shifted towards the infrared. In which case, you might actually need a special organ to pick up, like, those high-energy bursts and hide from them. Mm, I think I, it could be, like, I, I fully see your point, and I realize it requires uh, research on my part. And also, I kind of just wanted three eyes. Uh, yeah, well, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's a perfectly fine aesthetic choice on itself. <laughs> three eyes are cool. But, but now that you ended up, that's interesting about where, where, where mm. is, what do they need to see in? And can yeah. that for also work as this early protection method, the early detection? Yeah. I don't know the. But like they, for they that. could see, they could see invisible spectrum and just be it have it go higher than the visual spectrum we have and incorporate it. I'm not yeah. saying that they would have ultraviolet eyes that would exclude other things. It was just that the eye would have a greater. Yeah, they can just see more. Yeah, you could do yeah, totally, totally. And then there's also the question. Oh, geez, I really didn't think we get into like talk about eyes here. But there's also the question about whether or not, and I can't answer this because again, I didn't, I didn't do homework on this. I just wanted three eyes. Um, yeah. There's also the question about whether or not a third eye could that do anything for like depth perception? Could that 
is there any sort of enhancements that can be made? Can you can one perceive the world better if we have three eyes? Could you have? Well, a... you've, you've got redundancy for depth perception that you can lose an eye in a fight or an accident and still have. Oh yeah, yeah, binocular yeah. Binocular vision. That's true, and you depending on the placement of the third eye, you could also have a greater field of vision. Oh yeah, for sure. You could see a sure. greater arc light, but then that detracts from the idea that it's just a UV detecting organ. Like then it needs to be, but then it can just be like the like you said the broad the broad spectrum. Um, yeah, yeah. That's that that there is there are pros and cons, but I just chose it because I want three eyes. <laughs> and that's that's absolutely fine, and I fully support that. Three and eyes. Also, my like my, my setting it, it's quite. See, I want to be able to make decisions like that just cause because I like them. And it's fun. Yeah. So my, my setting is very much like, again, if I ever write this novel, it's very, it would very much be like a really young adult vibe where you can kind of get away with these loose choices that you don't have to be as strict as you would in like a, like a high fantasy sort of thing. Yeah. Um, because I like that. And I like things like Avatar that do all this. But anyhow, let's crack on. So we have the, the, the bat opossum yoke. But these, these, I've, I've one, one last point to make in the bat possum. Oh yeah, make it. Um, I, I, I really like the wings because there's a lot of different ways that wings work in nature and like in, in, in some animals, uh, like the, I think like in pterodactyls, the, the top of the wing is the fingers. Like all of the arm happens like at the shoulder, the arm's really small mm-hmm. and then the fingers are the entire wing. But on bats, the, the arm is like the top of the wing and yeah. then the fingers are the supports in between. And that's, that, so that's, that's carried over here. Um, whether that was a, a, a point you made or a, a, a thing that Astrid did and, and carried over from real life bats. I don't know. But yeah, it's yeah, I, I like that attention to detail. Yeah, I, I w- will say most of the attention to detail is Astrid's doing because I don't like telling creative people what to do. So I was like, mm-hmm. here's the broad outline, you know, like the its body should look like this animal. Uh, like the wings could look like this, and but I tried to keep things vague and let Astrid, because like they are the artists, so let them make the decision. So I, most of the detail is there is they're doing, mm-hmm. completely like anyway. So we have the ba- battle possum, which is not final names. Like these are these are not final names. These are these are total placeholder names, uh, as is evidenced by the next animal, which call which is called the slant eater, <laughs> <laughs> which is a hybrid between a sloth. And an anteater. So for people not... I, I only just figured that out at the start of this segment that it was a sloth. <laughs> a foul tear. Foul tear. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, for, for, for those not looking at the uh, at the pictures, it is a uh, big furry white thing. Its body is like a sloth. All, mm-hmm. But its face, it has a purple face and it's shaped like an anteater's face. And like Gonzo. It looks a bit, it looks a bit like Gonzo it does. This is my favorite of the bunch. I think this animal just looks hella cute. <laughs> so cute. And then Astrid's really great at having included like different poses and stuff. And also, I don't know, I, I didn't question them about this because uh, I wanted to leave it open to my own interpretation. They've included different shapes of the animal here, which I'm not going to take as sketches and preamble to the main thing. I'm going to take as different uh, subspecies. Yeah, which I think is uh, just really cool. I don't know if that's deliberate, but we have two subspecies of the slant eater here, um, which I think is really cool. So, so yeah, there's that guy, and then there's a uh, this is a tri- this is a trippy one. This is a a a bear crossed with a frog, crossed with a like 
sort of like uh, what's the guy from the Mario series, the big dinosaur, Bowser. Bowser. So this is right. A bear. There's a there's bear in there. Yeah. So the <laughs> there's a bear in there. So if you look at the, the the body underneath the shell, right, is meant to be bear-like. Uh, to be fair, that the angle of the final version doesn't really um, doesn't really show this. So the body is okay. meant to be bear-like. And the, the shape of the head is meant to be bear-like, but it has frog-like features and frog legs. Okay. And then, and then, on, to- and then on top of it is this Bowser-like plated armor sort of thing. Yeah, and, and a club tail. And a club tail. This borrows from armadillos as well. Again, because we're, we're doing the whole Afro, uh, Afro-Brazilian vibe. Uh, so that's that's that guy again. I have very little to talk about in terms of like what these animals are like inside or what's the yeah. thing. This how, is a- how big is a bermadillo? Now that's what I was going to say. How big do you think it should be? I kind of thought of it as like m- maybe like the size of a dog, like a terrier kind of size. Okay, all right. I or like like it's like like the size of an armadillo or a pangolin or something. I'm inclined to lean towards the fantastical sides of things and just have big, giant animals. Bear-sized, like, Like, bear-sized, yeah. I would say that this thing, like, especially when you look at, say, the top right-hand corner there, I would say that this thing is uh, mountable. <laughs> <laughs> like, that big, like, definitely. I re- and I, now, when I say this, I realize this does not fit in with, like, steampunk uh, or, or cyberpunk. So I think I just wanted to have a Avatar Last Airbender sort of moment here. Uh, but yeah, mountable and can be used as, like, transport, definitely. So that big. Do the do the horns grow in regular patterns or will it, like, vary from from Bermadillo to Bermadillo or it'll be, like, very between... Um, between breeds i would say very i would say very but not like not anything mad okay in the same way that like zebra stripes are all unique except you know you don't really see a freak zebra one stripe okay yeah that, that, okay. so that, they'll they'll be like totally different between between d- different bermadillos but like within quite a narrow range yeah yeah within quite narrow it's okay. such such that you can kind of sort of make a, a sort of standard saddle for the yoke and mount it and with, okay. a, with a little bit of jiggering, it can be made work. It's not like you're going to find one that's just covered in spikes and just you can't mount it. Um, yeah. So that's the, the bear Medillo. Uh, then we have a Sogolot. Which is I like this one. I like this one too. This is, like, this is a saber-toothed dog crossed with an ocelot. Uh, the, sa- yeah. the saber-toothed being, I also included extinct animals from, from South America because... Cause, yeah, because they're saber two cats, and saber two cats are hella cool. <laughs> uh, so uh, again, this is, uh, and also I had this idea of of perhaps sharing traits of the animals, which I think is quite interesting. So I think this yoke will be kind of like that savanna cat. Have you ever seen that savanna cat? I think so. It's like it's like a it's a cat. It's a domestic cat. Uh, it's bred, but it's bred from. African cats such that it's quite territorial and quite aggressive and displays the sort of uh, um, the sort of disposition of dogs. Okay. So it's a cat with the territorial nature of a dog. And I think this would be the same thing. This thing would be very feline-like, uh, but will have the sort of the disposition and the territorial nature of mm. a of a canine. Um, so yeah, there you go. And the same thing, the same design, design thing goes on here. It's purple. Purple is incorporated in some way. 
yeah. subtly throughout just because to tie everything in. But uh, yeah, so anyway, we got the Sogalot and then we have two more. We have the Zen Monkey, which is, so this is like a hyper monkey. I went and looked through li- li- <laughs> <laughs> literally, literally so many monkeys. Like you've no idea how many monkeys are listed under Brazilian monkeys on Wikipedia. I looked at a lot of monkeys and kind of just took the features that I really liked from various different types and combined them mm-hmm. into one hyper monkey. Uh, and yeah. what what came out immediately from from this is a sort of yeah a sense of like this wise old sage of the forest sort of thing. Absolutely, kind of like Rafiki from from the Lion King, and mm-hmm. uh, I really like the look of this guy. I really like it. Uh, in stark contrast to the other ape that we came up with, which is No Ape. And No Ape, I want to explore further because I think this is the highlight of the bunch. This is a another monkey. Uh, more gorilla-like. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is inspired, again, by the monkeys of of uh, the Amazon, but also by No-Face from Spirited Away. Okay. And I wanted to create a sort of animal that looks very human, that people could, like, mistake as being a human wandering rainforests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the idea of kind of it wears a human-shaped mask. Like not not a literal mask, but its 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 skin is shaped in the shape of a human, so it's it's like it's yeah. doubly mistakable. And Astrid was amazing here because I, I just thought that you just put like a no face mask on it. But what what they've done here, which is cool, they've like like built it around its natural face. If you see that, like it's mm-hmm. got its its own mouth and it's got its own three eyes, but beneath that there is a human, like an oddly like sterile blank looking human face and it actually took me like a day or two to realize that that was there i was like oh that's a really nice picture that's a really nice uh human thing and i was like oh no wait there's two faces going on here which is yeah i think, I think is great and i think there's uh, a lot of um scope for lore here like as in the mythology around this like it could be i don't know your lost ancestors become the no ape and they wander the forest and there's like you could build up a whole load of mythology around this and i i, I think there's i think there's the best of the bunch i think there's a lot of scope here uh, i really like this one um i didn't make the no face connection like as in the spirit of the way no face what mm. i assumed was Ooh. that it was a, a, a no theater mask i don't know what that means um, well, maybe this is where No Face is is designed from, um, but there's a kind of okay. Look, I'm I'm probably going to misrepresent this, but bear with me. There's some kind of um, Japanese theater called No Theater, N O H, okay. and performers wear masks in it. Oh, yeah, they they wear like kind of liqueured um, wooden masks. You know, Joey Jordison, uh, Slipknot. Yeah, you, you remember the mask he used to wear for Slipknot? Yeah, yeah. That's, I, I think, meant to be derived from or inspired by no theatre mask. So it's this kind of, in his case, it was kind of expressionless. These, and these, like a... these things, Bill, I'm looking at them, they are creepy. <laughs> like, they are, like, this is uncanny. Wait, hold on, are you Googling? Yeah, I'm Googling no, the- no, no theatre. While recording? Oh, Bill, don't even... <laughs> 
You never do that though. It's yeah, me I, who does that. I I have two computers now, so I can do this without well disturbing the recording. Oh. Uh, right. Um. The yeah yeah they are uncanny valley valley territory. Like they yeah, are good, aren't they? They are human, but not quite. It's disturbing. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that maybe that's where the spirit of the way uh character gets it from. Could, could be. Could well be, and then I've inadvertently taken it from there as well. Um. Yeah. But I like this. I like this idea, and yeah, and I, I like I like the inclusion of the the skull drawing. You know, it's it's done on one or two others as well, but the skull drawing here really kind of helps show what's happening with the with the no ape. Yeah. So uh, what Astrid has done, like Bill said, has included some anatomical um, drawings. Again, I didn't say any of this. I was kind of like, here's a list of design inspiration. Like here's the pictures. Go go off and and uh, draw draw something inspired by it. And like they went above and beyond. Like totally did. Um, mm. so, and it, yeah, you're right. Especially with like the placement of the faux face, you can see exactly how, it, how it fits into the real face and how it works. And yeah. I, I like this idea, like when, when the, the monkey is, or the ape is looking directly forward, we can't see the human face, but then yeah. if, if it like, especially if its head is very flexible, if it tilts like 90 degrees downwards, it looks like mm. an entirely different creature. Which I think is which I think is really interesting. Well, and I imagine like and imagine quite horrifying. You imagine if you're like stuck in a rainforest or stuck out in the wild, and you see this like yeah. big, massive, lumbering, uh, intimidating monkey ape creature coming at you, and you're like, "That's how it looks." Yeah. And then it changes suddenly, and that would scare, that would scare the living daylights out of you. Like, there, there is actually, I don't, I don't know if this is a, a common thing, but I remember, um seeing a a dancer that um wore a mask on the top of their face um so it was kind of like this they they had they they had like their actual face covered right and they had a mask on like a wooden mask or something on like the the crown and they did a lot of dancing with their head face like pointing down so that we the audience would see this mask they had on cool i like yeah, I like, yeah. that was really cool yeah the, definitely and i think that's that that's something definitely going on here. I think, anyways, judging from these anatomical drawings, um, so I like it. No ape is by far my favorite of the collection, um, mm. but they're all amazing. They're all they're all they're all so good. Um, and I have I have loads of ideas for like how far did I go? Hold on, no, let me let me let me call up my bookmarks here. Uh, I didn't burden Astro with too much, but I did a lot mm. of I did a lot of this, a lot of thinking about this. I have a a guinea pig one, a porcupine one, a deer one, rat, r- whale, rabbit, turtle, a crocodile, an iguana slash dragon slash dinosaur, uh, snake, snake, snail, uh, a slug slash star-nosed mole, a sea snail, a spider, and two spiders. <laughs> a slug star, star-nosed slug mole. Oh my god, can, that sounds revolting. Can, can you see it though? Can you see it? Like. <laughs> That's so revolting. I know, I know, but it's great. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, again, I really... No, the, the hardcore world builder me is kind of like, this isn't real world building. Like, real world be- would be like figuring out how this thing, how these animals work exactly um, and the context around them. But I, I, I've, I unashamedly just had a really fun... A fun month of just putting together animals I taught uh, I like I liked together and I'm not even going to apologize for that. It's great. Nor should you. <laughs> Nor should I. But yeah, so there's my animals. Check them out in the um, 
in the sub uh, and in the show notes and let me know what you thought. Yeah, definitely. These, these are great, man. <laughs> I'm really enjoying these. They're really fun. They're really, really fun. Yeah. Uh, okay. Which is the cutest? Which is the cutest? Uh, slant Eater. Yeah, I think the Slant Eater. Slant Eater. Uh, like, the... a bit of me obviously wants to go for the, the one that has a, has a dog element, because I love dogs, but the the drawing, like, the, the, the uncolored drawing to the right of the Slant Eater is just very adorable. <laughs> really? I like, the, I like the colored one. The colored one gets me. Uh, I like yeah yeah, um. But yeah, they're all they they all look like they're kind of sort of of the same world, which is kind of good. Yeah. Uh, which is which is nice and testament again to the artist. So uh, so that's all for this month. I think uh, I don't have any particular topics lined up for us to world build next month. Okay. So what I think what would be great if people could leave suggestions in the subreddit. What would you like sure. to see both of us do uh, next month? Um, because and I, we can we can do the same thing and compare it, or we can do different things like we did this week. Yeah, we'll this, this episode. Ideally, what will happen is uh, we'll get a whole bunch of suggestions, and me and you will just pick what will be the greatest yeah. way of of applying them. So let us yeah. know in the subreddit or on email or on the YouTube channel, wherever you find us. Let us know, and we will do something, hopefully interesting for next month. Sounds good. Okay, uh, should we go into the green room now, Bill? Let's. I. Decided that yeah, you know, I finished the Duolingo Irish course, mm-hmm. um, and I was pretty happy with what I'd learned from that. Some of the grammar stuff didn't fully stick, but I, I keep you know I keep going back to it and refreshing it. Um, but I decided that it wasn't enough, um, and that I need to actually be using it. Yes, yes. So I've taken I'm taking an Irish course, an evening course. Congratulations on, on Tuesday nights on two fronts. Congratulations on finishing Duolingo, and congratulations on wanting to pursue it further. I think that's really cool. Um, mm. How you find the Irish course? Uh, really good, actually. Really good. Um, so it's there's this this group that are running them in various places around the country, and they they run them quite often, and they've got a really good website that has uh, uh, resources for learning Irish on it. Um, and anyway, a friend told me that this was happening, and I, I looked it up, and they're, the places they're running them are Dublin, obviously enough. Mm-hmm. They're an organization based in Dublin, big city. Cork, you know, another big city. And Carlo. Those are the three locations that they're running them in. Oh. And Carlo's not a big city. Carlo's like 20,000 people. Is that all? Wow, it's very small. Huh. Yeah, like, even, even by, like, Irish standards, it's not all that big. Yeah, not at all. Um, but they're running them here, so that's great. Um, so, uh, yeah, I signed up, I did a test on their website and it told me to do lower, the lower intermediate. And so I went along and the lower intermediate was grand. And I actually tried the higher one the week after and I was, I've been able for the higher, the, uh, higher intermediate since. So I'm, I'm working away at that. Cool. And yeah, it's, it's, it's going well. I'm and enjoying it. Is, is this like a classroom environment or is this more of a, like everyone sits around and tries to talk Irish at one another? Um, it's kind of in between. Like we sit at a, at a big long table, uh, cause that's the kind of table that's in the room and we like do, Which we work pints in of mead. <laughs> um, yes. And our, and our hunting hounds by our feet and yeah. planning the next raid. Exactly. Um, <laughs> 
uh, we work in pairs and mostly like it's mostly done through Irish. We talk as much Irish as possible. Sometimes I have to go into English when I'm asking a very specific grammar question. Um, right. Okay. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've been I've been kind of getting by, and the, that website that I mentioned earlier actually has a series of videos on Irish in Irish, and the first video gives you a load of Irish terms for grammatical concepts. So like how to say pronoun and verb and stuff okay. in Irish, which is quite useful. Okay, definitely, yeah. Especially when it comes to adult learners who will want to find out this advanced information. Yeah. Um, like, you know, obviously not so useful for, for little kids. No little kid's going to be like, what What pronoun do I use here? You know what I mean? But but adults, yeah, definitely. Cool. That's really and I've, cool. I've been speaking it socially as well. Like, I've, I've uh, a good few of my friends, like, went to the Irish schools or I, I know someone who, like, teaches in the Irish school. Um, in town, so I've been I've been practicing it socially quite a lot. What's What's your opinion on Irish and like it being taught? Like like okay, so for sorry for non Irish listeners in school here, uh, Irish is mandatory. Uh, yeah. From like yeah the earliest age, uh, right up until you leave high school. Yeah. So it's like you got like fourteen years of Irish. Uh, like his... you, you, you get exempted if you've got like special educational needs, yeah, or if you uh, arrive in the country older than the age of like eight or nine or something. Yeah, yeah, we we don't force our sense of nationalism nationalism on others, which is good. Uh, yeah, I, I think. Uh, but yeah, so there's a constant debate in Ireland uh, about whether or not it's right to force people to learn the language. Um. Mm. Or whether or not to make it optional and whether or not it's done correctly in schools and all this sort of thing. How, how do you fall on this? Like, My personal ideal solution would be that it would be mandatory and taught a lot better. That it would be a better syllabus and a better course. Okay, and you so mandatory because you don't think an optional system would work? As in not enough people would take it up? I suspect so. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it would be to the to the detriment of the language. Now, maybe it would be less to the detriment of the current system. Or maybe it would be less to the detriment of the language than the current system, which is mandatory and not taught well and turns people off it. Maybe if people had the option and it was taught well, people would take it. Um, mm. I don't know. Yeah, I, I that, that would kind of be my ideal system. I lean towards optional. Uh, Always right. in nearly everything because I think the minute you make things mandatory, a bit of resentment sets in. Yeah. And you're like, I have to do this. I don't want to do this. I have to do this. Whereas you know, people, people will um will choose it, and the people who do choose it will be more passionate about the thing, and they'll be more inclined yeah. to keep it up. And so I always lean on the optional side of things, even though it's scary because it's like eh, maybe we're losing a language here if we do that. Yeah. Which which is which is not great. What's your opinion on the Gaeltacht? And, what do you mean? and before, yeah, before you answer this, let me just like uh, clarify all this. So for the non-Irish listeners, uh, we have this thing called the Gaeltacht. And mm-hmm. it's uh, it's where kind of school-aged uh, people uh, go off to regions of the country during the summer uh, where they are taught Irish in like a native sort of environment. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, like the Gaeltacht is the area where it is natively spoken, and then they they tend to run summer camps where where children go to to 
practice the language. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, what are, what I want I want to know your opinions on that the con that concept the concept of ideas like the idea of children during the summer going off to the Gaeltacht, uh, staying there, learning the language, going home, all that sort of jazz. Like pro against. I have no strong feelings on it. I have never really thought much about it. I, I did it twice, I think. Okay, so uh, I've always I didn't do it. I never went to get mm. uh, but I've always thought that it's a little bit weird. Like, okay, it's a little bit sort of like scoutsy in the sense of like that you know it's sort of militarized scout behavior. It's like a little bit like uh, it always struck me as being like slight indoctrination. Do, do, okay, do, do, like I know I realize it probably isn't at all, but it's kind of like you know to be Irish, one must go to like the Irish the Irish areas and learn Irish and no English is allowed at all because we're in Ireland and Ireland's about Irish and it's it's all kind of like it's it sort of it, pra- it prays in this idea of the mandatory nature of it for me yeah um so I, I think my opinion is fairly unpopular because I think most people <clears throat> think the Gale took is a really good positive thing whereas I find it really creepy just really creepy and really nationalistic and like patriotic in a way um I think I think some of them are more nationalistic than others. And some of them are more uh, flexible about English than others. Like some of them, like if you say any English word, you'll be in trouble. Yeah. And others would be like, oh, well, if you, if you don't know the word for crow, then, you know, you can just say crow and I'll tell you what the Irish word is. Yeah. And uh, again, for the listeners, uh, yeah, there are places where if you go to this and like Bill said, if you say any English, you'd be like sent packing home for the summer. Um, and you're not allowed to stay there if you say any English, which I, which again, that's really creepy. It's really, really creepy. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it doesn't bother me much because it is, it is an entirely optional one, and you can, you can just not go if it's weird. Well, and, I mean, and because I did a lot of, I did a lot of uh, summer courses as a teenager anyway. Like I went to, a, I went to German college for three weeks one year, um, and I did, I did course, like I did, actually I did Russian and Chinese courses, and I did like a couple huh. of other topics in in various summer camps that I did, so. Huh, there you go. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, you didn't know that? Yeah, no. Russian and Chinese. But I where the Russian and Chinese ones were like, you are now in an analogue of China. You must be act Chinese at all times. No, no, just we had, we had the, the classes on the language and then we did other stuff for the rest of the day and we like, obviously, because there were other people doing other courses at the same time in, in the same yeah. location. You see, that that is what I would consider a yeah. normal summer course to be. Yeah. Whereas the Gaeltuck just stripe, strikes me as just being really yeah, like I said, really strange. Uh, and I don't know if it's entirely productive to, maybe it is productive to keeping the language going, but like for people like me, just like the concept put me off as a kid going. Just mm-hmm. completely put me off. Like I was kind of like, no, I'm I'm my own person. I don't want to be shipped off to a certain area of the country and then being told by some person who has like this uh, over the top love of the language that I can't speak English when I want to. And it's like, no, that's not right. Like I like learning and stuff, so I'll I'll learn on my own in my own way. And mm. I don't know. Um, Ever the anti-authoritarian Edgar. Yeah, <laughs> Edgar the anti-authoritarian. Um. I wonder, does the likes of the Gaeltacht happen in other countries? Like, if in other countries where English uh, has taken over and is destroying the native language, is there a culture whereby they send kids off to specialised areas for uh, a period of time to learn it? I wonder... I don't know. That's, I think I that's, mean, that's an interesting question. I think the language is quite healthy in Wales. Um, I don't know whether they have, like, 
kind of immersion courses for children the same way. I don't think they do in Scotland. Immersion courses. Uh, that's that's a better term for it. That's a better term for it. Um, um, and yeah. where, where else is it happening? I mean, where else is Anglophone but has minority languages? Um, yeah, but, that, but not even English. Couldn't the same thing happen with, like, let's take the Italy example from before. Like, Italian yeah. has become all-pervasive and those little smaller... Uh, remnants of the continuum are dying out do people go I don't, I don't think they are dying out i think they're healthy i think they're oh, very healthy in italy so they're just healthy but small yeah yeah like they're localized oh. like like people in genoa speak genoan and people in friuliani speak friuliani and okay. you know people in sicily speak the sicilian whatever the one there is called um but they like they speak it at home and it's 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 active at home and they're all able to or most of them are able to actually speak um, standard Italian or whatever the, the correct kind of way of Ho- expressing Ho- Italian. Hoch Italian, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I meant to say this to you ages ago, right? Okay. Uh, this is a cool language thing. Or maybe I did say it to you. Apologies if I did and you can cut all this out. There would um, be a lot of cutting from this episode, man. I've, I've a very good friend um, who's a uh, TEFL teacher. So English is a foreign language. Right. Or like you know, second language or ESOL or whatever you want you want to yeah, yeah, yeah. name that concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've had a lot, lot of real good conversations with her about about language and about language learning and and stuff. And she's she's taught all over the world. Um, okay. but she's telling me she knows people who are illiterate in their first language. But, like, so like they, their first language, the language they natively speak, they that they speak at home, no idea how to write it. But they're completely literate in, say, English, which is like this their second language. And this is the thing that seems to happen with um, immigrant oh. communities. So I think the example she had was speakers of Urdu, in England, that they speak Urdu at home, and that's like what they na- natively think in. That's what they talk about with their family. But because all of their schooling is done through English, they're yeah, also yeah. fluent in English as their second language. But they they just never and and they write in English, and that's the only language they're literate in, and that's, they never learn to. Isn't that really interesting? That's really interesting. Yeah, like it's kind of obvious how that arrives arises, but that's yeah, that's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Huh. I I have okay right. The scene is this podcast is going to going to going on for about four hours. We may as well just keep going. Uh, have you on the subject of illiteracy? Right. Have you heard the uh, accusation, I suppose, that Trump is illiterate? I have not. Okay, so, uh, okay, I need your thoughts on this as well. I'll run the scenario by uh, by you. Um, so there is a uh, vlogger, I suppose, of some note. I mean, this person had several hundreds of thousands of, of subscribers. I don't me- I can't remember who they are, it looks like. Uh, but in any case, they... Um, they put forward this case that Trump is illiterate based on what he has said and done and how he displays all the body language and reactions of an illiterate person who is faced with a literacy test, like as in read this thing. Okay. Uh, And yeah, he he talks about like, you what? Like deflection and boasting. and Yeah, d- deflection and boasting and stuff like they, they will very often pretend to read, but you can see in the body language that there is no comprehension going on. And then immediately after having 
purportedly finished the paragraph or whatever they had to read, they will do what you said. They will deflect or whatever. Um, yeah. So th- I got to say, this guy made a strong case for, for Trump <laughs> being illiterate. And like it, it, they showed various uh, courtroom uh, things where he has to give testimony because he's constantly in court for suing people or whatever, where he has like repeatedly said, oh, I didn't read that contract or I never read that form and stuff right. where you're kind of like, man, those things you should really read. And <laughs> it just seems really strange that he didn't. In any case, that is fine as a, um, as a theory to put out there as a, as a hypothesis. Uh, but then there was a real weird bent that the man took to it. He was kind of like, because Trump is illiterate, he is unfit to govern. Right? And right. the guy tied in this idea that illiterate people are less equipped to deal with life in a way, like business life and like managerial life and all this. Because apparently literacy comes into play with lots of other things. Like decision making is based on, is based on like, can be based on how literate you are. Um, and things like that. Hmm. And I was, it was really weird watching it because I think the man is unfit to govern, but I think leveling criticism that illiterate people are, are unfit to hold an office like that, I think that's wrong. And it's really ableist. It's really ableist. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, like I'd, I'd imagine if you are illiterate, there will be certain things that you would find really difficult to do. But then yeah. if you are openly illiterate, you can just like delegate and subdelegate you know, tasks that you yourself can't perform. But I think saying that someone is inherently incapable of a thing because of illiteracy was really offensive. And then the, yeah. the usual comment section below YouTube was all kind of like, yeah, man, Trump's illiterate. Like, go assassinate him and all this stuff. And you're like, why? This is just so cancerous. Like, it's just... And I, I dislike I, mean, I dislike Trump to, like I really dislike Trump. But I think it's really mean saying... There's lots of valid criticisms that aren't that... That, yeah. that aren't as ableist. Like, yeah, if it, <laughs> and, and, uh, maybe there's the the guts of a of a thing there that if you're that wealthy and and that privileged in the modern West, that not being able to read might be a, a something to, that we should be concerned about when you're in that kind of power. But maybe there's a more subtle way to to express that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, but again, again, my point still stands from earlier. It's like, okay, maybe you you yourself can't read all the documents, but you're meant to have a cabinet of trusted people around you. Yeah. Uh, and you can be, a person could be illiterate, but could be really good at people management, say. Yeah. And that could be their primary skill. So especially considering a, a president should be a diplomat. Yeah. Like it's, it's a measure of one very specific ability. Bingo. One very specific, super important ability. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it is, but, but it is only one. Yeah, you know, it, it is only one. So I, I don't know. I got. I'm usually not one to get all up in arms about these things, but it was weird because I found myself like sympathizing with Trump and being like, if tomorrow <laughs> Trump, you came out and said you were illiterate, I wouldn't be on team attack Trump because of his illiteracy. I'd be on you know team attack trump because of his misogyny and, and sexism yeah. and racism and uh what's called bromance with putin and all of this sort of thing but that's i don't know just tl the yeah. don't don't tell it, literal people that they're lesser like it, it raises worrying questions surely but yeah yeah it's just like and i've there's a i think there's a high proportion of illiter- illiteracy around where i grew up really yeah like dad used to make me aware of these things like he would do uh houses for people 
And mm-hmm. he would say, you have to sign this thing. Can you read it? And he used to always be like, it's strange, Edgar, like how many times you just know that this person is not taking in any information from the stuff I'm putting in front of them. And you very often he had to resort to actually dictating what's on the thing to the person. Jesus. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, this is an older generation sort of thing. Like, obviously, the younger yeah, generation yeah. Are, are, are are as literate, I think, as is possible in the Western world, you know? They, mm-hmm. they have the same literacy levels. Um, but yeah, like, so I, I know of these people, and I would never be like, you are a lesser person because you're literate. Like, some of these people are way more skilled than I am in certain areas, and I'm better in certain areas than them. And it's just like... Humans, man, we're different. Oh, I just sorry, it just drove me. It drove me nuts. It, it must be really scary. At, well, maybe that, that's that's a bit patronizing or whatever. But it, it seems like a kind of thing that could be really scary to to be surrounded by all this information that you're unable to to engage with. Like imagine, yeah. imagine like you you woke up tomorrow and everything was was written in Mongolian script. Yeah. Like, and everyone else understood it. Yeah, and, and then uh, and you know, then you're also probably not going to want to say that you don't understand it. Yeah. So there's like that secret life, and where you're like we say, where you're constantly dodging things like that must be uh, must be terrible. Like. Yeah, and like you know, like imagine like how much information is in a book, like in a small little object like a book, like how much there could be held in that. Yeah, this there's is... kind of there's kind of an awesomeness to that, um, and but then like even in that case, you know, you're still able to read english and latin script but like to have no in at all into the like the concept of this being a transcription of speech is just yeah and then i'm sure there's other worries like for example the uh teaching children how to read like you know if i can't read how am i going to teach my kid to read yeah, yeah, it's the, whole, it's the practical thing, yeah. Yeah, which absolutely. is... Oh, here, okay, look, again, we're just going to keep going. We'll make this a record-length podcast. Uh, <laughs> the teaching kids to read, right? Right. Opinion on this. Whose job is that? The parent or the school? Don't know. Huh, not something you ever thought about? Not really. I mean, I know that I could read when I went to school. Okay. Um, and did, did I'm assuming your parents took it upon themselves to at least open your world to books. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I was able, I, I was like, I was able to write a little bit. Um, okay. Uh, so you never thought about this. I have, I have a very, I have a very strong memory of like doing something in kind of like big bubble letters. Um, and then being told, oh no, the, the teacher won't like that when you start in school in September. And that I have to write like with proper like lines. Oh, um, Huh. But you, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I haven't really thought enough about this as a as a topic of educational policy. Um, it seems like the kind of thing that like you you ought to do with your kids, I guess. But I mean, also that your know, schools are there for this kind of reason to 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 give education to people, and mm. historically mm. they wouldn't have. What? I don't. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that, man. That I. That what? statement. Let's do. Schools are there to do that. Like schools are. Like this has been covered on another podcast, so I don't want to get into it too much. But schools are kind of there to just be like state-funded childcare to free up a labor force. Do you know what I mean? Like they. They obviously do teach you skills as well, but it's. It's not like. Yes. Oh, there's a strong argument made that the primary function of schools is that freeing up the labor force. 
And it's not actually about teaching you. Okay, yeah, reading and writing and basic skills, yes, that is a thing that they teach you that will stick with you for the rest of your life. But in terms of nearly everything else they do, it's just literally they put up hurdles that you have to jump to get certain bits of paper and to finish. Like, there's right. no, there's nothing about actually making sure that the information that is conveyed in school sticks in your brain for the rest of your life. Mm. Um, that sounds that sounds plausible. Highly. <laughs> But the thing, the thing about the reading thing, right? Okay, just uh, just from from my end is, uh, I for a person who doesn't want to have kids, I think an awful lot about how I should raise kids. Uh, and yeah, I kind of the same. Like I, I kind of am no interest in having kids at all. But like, kind of, I would occasionally think about, oh well, if I had kids, I'd do this like that. Like yeah, how you would do it. Incredibly arrogant for me to to have those thoughts, but you know, it's they come unbidden. No, but you but you temper it with like obviously they are up for negotiation with a partner in the future. Like no, well, I think it's more arrogant from the point of view of like I have no clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh no, disagree. You're you're in the middle of formulating what it is you want to talk. But you're doing the prep work now. That's not arrogant. Like it is necessary to t- think about it before you have to like do it. Oh, okay, well, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I wouldn't say that was arrogant at all. Like, I mean, like, if you walk up to a, a parent of 10 kids and tell them how to parent, maybe that's arrogant. But there's nothing yeah. arrogant with sitting around thinking about it. Anyhow, point being, uh, I was talking to uh, someone in the educational sector, and uh, they were saying that there is a disturbing amount of parents who, who subdelegate all of this teaching literacy uh, to schools. Hmm. And they, oh, I can't remember, they rattled off percentages. And I was disgusted. Because I'm of the opinion that, you, like, like it's a parent's job to teach a kid. But, so like, and yeah. what blew my mind is that some parents are literally like, no, that's not my job. My job is not to teach kids. My job is to have kids and keep them fed and alive. And then it's the school's job to raise them. And it goes even further that some parents are like, uh, it's not my job to train my children. That's the job of a creche. Like a crash toilet trains, for example. I just keep oh, them alive. Nasty. Yeah, no, yeah. The, talking to this person, this person worked in so, social care as well, and this person was like, "Yeah, I've had to like I've had parents come up to me, they've handed me nappies and went there, there's do your job." And it's That's like That's nasty. But and, yeah, but never mind from the nasty side. It's just like I can't believe people are hardwired like that. Like if I had a kid, I would be. It would be so incumbent upon me to give them the tools for life before they actually need it. You know, give them. Yeah, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want them to be going out and showing you up, like, make, make, make to, to, to really hibernize the hell out of this, to make a holy show of you in front of everyone else. You didn't even teach your own kids how to, how to nah, go this, to the, the toilet. It is absolutely not that at all. I couldn't care what others think, would, would think of my kids. It's purely just like, if I teach them how to talk, read, write, use the toilet well before they need to, they're just better equipped to take on the next task. Yeah. You know, like they have a free room in their brain to get the next thing uh, ahead of when it's needed. Yeah. Um, like, and it just, it just, I know this is turning into a massive ramp, but it just, it blew my mind that people were like that. It's like, I, I don't teach my kids to read. What? How is that? Oh. Oh. I, did you come across this when, when you were, when you were teaching music? Like, um, a lot of kids like don't know nursery rhymes and stuff. No. I had that a lot, like kids like not re- actually know Yankee Doodle. Really? Or not not really know, like only kind of know Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah, I've had that. I've had that a bit recently. Only kind of know Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah. Wow. 
Is yeah. this is this leading on from our discussion? As in, like you think it's uh, parental neglect? I don't know. Ne- I don't ne- know what, the, what the, the cause of it is, but it's kind of weird. Like you think that would be like a part of the part of the oral culture and part of the culture that we look. Like, I would have assumed is naturally passed on to children, but seemingly not. Not. Yeah, it, that's that's worrying. Like I realize mm. there's nothing in a nursery rhyme, and like we've lost all sense of what these things mean for the for in in a practical sense. Uh, but it's just yeah, it's just it's worrying from a passing on of information from generation to generation. Like this is, I don't know, it's very troubling. I don't I don't like it. I, and I also on the topic of nursery rhymes, yes, it never says Humpty Dumpty's an egg. Again. Yeah, it never does. Nowhere in that poem does it, or in that nursery rhyme, does it say he's an egg? Hmm. Why has he been made into an egg? Why indeed? Why? <laughs> Luminati. <laughs> Why is Humpty Dumpty? Oh man, you're going all out in the Googling. Yeah, I know. Now that I can do Mad it. Mad for uh... a bit of Google. Okay, okay, so they're saying that, okay, uh, 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 Humpty Dumpty is an 18th, 18th century re- reduplicative slang for a short or clumsy person, right? And the, okay. the riddle may depend upon the assumption that a clumsy person falling off a wall might not be irreparably damaged, irreparably damaged, whereas an egg would be. So someone was like, oh, in order for this to have real oomph, we need to, we need to make Humpty a thing. That is both short and clumsy, I guess, but that when it falls down and breaks, it's broken, and there's no putting it back together. That's a bit of a stretch. I wonder where the numpty comes from. Is numpty. Like a, a... numpty. You never hear that insult? I I did. I love that word. Numpty. Yeah, that's good. Um... <laughs> uh, it okay. Come, it, it's Scottish. That's all I can. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyhow. All right. Okay. So we are 40 seconds away from a three hour long raw recording. Oh, Jesus. I'm going to have. Do you, I know what's really interesting. Next week. I'm a minute away now. You're a minute away. Oh, yeah. We, we record different different tapes at uh, different times. Um, yeah. The I have my busiest week of literally the entire week, uh, year next week. <laughs> and I have a three hour record to do with. But it'll be great crack. Be great crack. So it'll come out when it comes out. All right, Bill. So after all of that, uh, let's let's wrap it up, shall we? After that marathon session. After that marathon session. Okay, I will see you next month. Yeah. See you next month. Excellent. All right, Edgar out. Edgar out. Edgar out.